Hey everybody, if you can hear me, please give me a thumbs up or a fire emoji or whatever is there. Okay, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to AM Live. I really appreciate you joining me. It's a, it's a challenging time with war breaking out in Ukraine, something that I have to say off the bat, I did not think would happen. I was very skeptical of these nonstop U.S. claims that invasion was imminent, but I was wrong. Um, the main source for my skepticism was the fact that Ukraine itself did not seem convinced that Russia was going to invade, as were many anonymous European officials that spoke to the media, who spoke about a lack of shared intelligence from the U.S. On top of that, you have the fact that there's been such a record of U.S. intelligence deception. So I thought this was another one uh, in that long history. But I was wrong. And uh, now we have this really serious situation going on. And I first want to just acknowledge that all the people who will be suffering as a result of this Russian action in Ukraine foremost, and in Russia too, because ordinary Russians, I think, will you know, shoulder the burden of whatever the U.S. and its allies do in response via sanctions. I mean, people's pensions, people's bank accounts are going to be hurt. And uh, I just want to acknowledge them as we discuss this crisis. So I'm going to talk a bit for, about what I think is behind this attack on Ukraine by Russia, and then we'll open it up to calls. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. And I'm, I'm pleased to see there's already a long line of people. There's a long history, and I'm not going to go through it all. I'm going to sketch out what I think is important. And if, you, if I miss anything, I hope you'll add it, call in and, and, and share with me what we think I'm missing and what needs to be understood. But basically, I think the fundamental problem here is a longstanding U.S. project to treat Ukraine as a proxy on Russia's borders. And that means expanding NATO to Russia's borders via Ukraine, even though the U.S. also knew that NATO membership for Ukraine would be very, very difficult. They still would not take it off of the table. And they dangled the prospect of NATO membership to Ukraine and sort of encouraged it to take many policies, dangerous policies that I think contributed to Russia's decision to invade. And the basic history is, and, you know, Forgive me if you've heard all this before, but basically at the end of the Cold War, as a condition for Russia agreeing to let Germany reunify, Russia or the, the Soviet Union under Gorbachev was promised that NATO would not expand one inch to the east. And so Gorbachev, in a very big concession, I think, because Germany was the staging ground for you know, the murderous, mass murdering Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union back during the Second World War allowed Germany to be reunified, uh, despite the history there. The U.S. responded by basically ignoring its own commitments and expanded NATO in the 1990s and 2000s. And in 2008, this really escalated when Ukraine was promised NATO membership. Uh, the Bush administration led that. Along with that, you also had the U.S. ripping up arms control treaties that were reached during the Cold War. So you had the um, the most significant one was the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty that was torn up by the Bush administration. And at the time, Bush said that we needed to uh, abandon this treaty because we need to help protect Europe from missiles from Iran, which was such a transparent joke. 
the actual reason for Bush's decision to do that is because Bush was continuing this longstanding U.S. project to encircle Russia because Russia is the other top nuclear power, which gives it leverage, and which means it, it can actually deter U.S. hegemony. So that's what Bush and John Bolton and, other, and Dick Cheney were doing in tearing up arms control treaties like that. And there were more as well that were basically discarded because of U.S. stalling. And Vladimir Putin, in a speech in 2007 at the Munich Security Conference, called all this out. He called out the expansion of NATO, and he also called out the abandonment of, cold, of arms control treaties that were limiting the ar- arsenals of the top nuclear powers. But Putin's speech was ignored, and NATO continued to expand. A year later, Ukraine gets this promise of NATO membership. And fast forward to 2013, 2014, and something very significant happens. And I think this is when really the war in Ukraine began. The war in Ukraine, as my friend and colleague Anya Parampil said yesterday, did not begin overnight, just last night. I think it began in 2013, 2014, when you had Ukraine offered a European Association trade agreement under the government of Yanukovych. And Yanukovych initially uh, said he would sign this agreement. But then he read the fine print. And the fine print not only basically cut off or seriously curtailed Ukraine's political, cultural, economic ties to Russia, which was a problem because a major part of the population speaks Russian and identifies with Russia. But worse than that, for Yanukovych, for his political survival, it called for harsh austerity, so cutting pensions and cutting energy subsidies. And Yanukovych, once he actually read all this, and apparently it was the Russians who presented this to him and, and presented him with the text that he hadn't read. That's what Richard Sakwa told me the other day on pushback. He freaked out because he realized that he was jeopardizing his political future. And so he backed out and he uh, then soon signaled that he would sign an agreement with Russia because Russia swept in and capitalized and offered him a, a more generous deal. They also applied some coercive measures as well. But certainly the deal that Yanukovych was offered by Russia was far more generous than the one offered to him by the European Union. So this led to massive protests, and a large element of those protests, the Maidan protests, were anti-corruption and pro-democracy, because corruption was then and still is now a very big problem in Ukraine. And Yanukovych definitely was corrupt. But the problem is a major element of that protest was far-right was fascistic, were people who emanated from neo-Nazi movements in Ukraine that are still very much alive today. And it's that movement that engaged in harsh violence and ultimately carried out a coup, a coup that was carried out with U.S. not only support, but participation. And the reason why we know that is because a few weeks before the coup happened in February 2014, there was a phone call in which Victoria Nuland, a top U.S. official under Obama and now under Biden, speaks to the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Piet, and they basically choose who the next Ukrainian leadership will be. And they go through several people by name, and they point out that one of the people who is a far-right leader, that he's too basically, he's basically too extreme to go into the government. It's not going to look good. And they, also, they, actually, but they say, though, that, that, the, that the new government needs his muscle on the street. It's better if he's on the outside. But the government that they do pick a few weeks later ended up becoming the new Ukrainian government because essentially after you know months of these protests, which did get violent, 
Yanukovych agreed to a European brokered deal in which there would be new elections and his power would be severely curtailed. So if the Ukrainian people wanted to throw him out, this would be the chance for them to do it. But I think there was anxiety inside Washington and in the far right in Ukraine that actually Yanukovych or someone like him could still prevail. So instead of allowing these new elections, they staged a coup and there was more violence and Yanukovych fled the country. And that's when you had Russia seize Crimea because Russia was faced with the prospect of a coup government that was talking openly about joining NATO, essentially handing over Russia's most important naval military base in Crimea to NATO. And Russia just couldn't countenance that. And that was a move to take Crimea that, that was widely popular across the Russian political spectrum. Even Alexei Navalny supported that. And certainly, if you believe the polls, pretty much the entire population of Crimea supported it too. That's not really in doubt. After that, you have the breakout of a, of a war. And that is a war that happens between uh, rebels in the east of Ukraine who speak Russian and identify with Russia against the coup regime in, in Kiev. And it's been very, very bloody. Some 14,000 people have died. I recently tweeted out the statistics on that. According to the UN, from the period of 2018 to 2021, 80% of the civilian casualties are happening on the pro-Russian rebel side, which speaks to an aspect of this war that is not discussed in Western media. We're supposed to believe that the war just began today, but if we value all human lives equally, for Russian speakers in the East, the last eight years have been hell. Uh, they've been under constant bombardment, and they've been constant under they've been under constant bombardment uh, by U.S. armed Ukrainian forces, and that's a very key point I want to stress here. The U.S. after backing this coup in 2014, instead of trying to broker a peace agreement, has instead treated Ukrainians as, as essentially bullet stoppers, as cannon fodder for their bid to expand NATO to Russia's borders, and basically turn Ukraine into a full-on client state. And so with U.S.-made weapons, Ukrainian forces have been fighting rebels in the east, and it's the civilians on the rebel-held side that have paid the worst price. Civilians on on the government-held side have obviously suffered too, but just according to the statistics, the vast majority of civilian casualties are on the rebel-held pro-Russian side. Now, there have been efforts to broker peace, and actually the agreement that is on the books and that everyone agrees or most people agree is the solution. It's something called the Minsk Accords. And that was reached back in 2015. And the basic bargain of it is, is that in return for the Donbass, these pro-Russian regions in the east, in, in return for them demilitarizing, Ukraine will grant them autonomy and that will essentially ensure that Ukraine is a NATO country. Uh, sorry, is a neutral country, not a NATO country. So it's going to respect basically the wishes of everybody. Those who live in Ukraine and hate Russia and want to be aligned with the West, they will have a voice. But the people who live in Ukraine and identify with Russia, they'll have a voice too. And basically, no one gets to determine the, the direction of the country in their favor. It's going to be neutral, like Finland, which has been, I think, pretty, pretty good for Finland. Most people can agree. And so that's the Minsk Accords of 2015. And... They've been stalled, and the Kiev government has refused to implement them. And this came to a head just a week ago when there were talks brokered by France and Germany on reviving Minsk, where at those talks, the 
Ukrainian government announced that they would no longer negotiate with the rebels in the east, which is essentially saying that Minsk is dead. Because if you won't talk to the people you're fighting with, then there's no way to have a resolution. It's just not going to happen. Now, I don't know what the U.S. role was there, but we certainly know that the U.S. has not been encouraging Ukraine to change its approach. And I have a hard time believing that the U.S. was not involved in that decision. I don't think the government in, in Kiev acts independently of the U.S., and I suspect that one day we'll find out, whether it's through declassified documents or something else, that the U.S. put pressure on Kiev essentially to walk away from Minsk. Certainly now Minsk is dead. It's over. Then you have also um, uh, Zelensky at the Munich Security Conference this week talking about Ukraine once again seeking nuclear weapons. That's something that he said. And I think all of this, so the refusal to implement Minsk, the refusal to take NATO membership off of the table, and Zelensky now calling, talking about uh, Ukraine possibly obtaining nuclear weapons, I think this pushed Putin to the brink. I think he snapped. Um, now, I think his, what he's doing is illegal, and it's going to cause a lot of suffering for both Ukrainians and for Russians. And I think he had other options. I don't understand what his rationale was, what his thinking was in doing this, because, look, if he really wanted to avoid... Ukraine joining NATO, he had other points of leverage that don't involve a full-on attack. His pipelines supply a lot of Europe, and he could have shut those off if he wanted to as a point to pressure Europe, to pressure the U.S., to pressure Kiev. He could have given a speech directed at, at the U.S. and saying that your country is pushing my country to war and explaining what his grievances are. Um, if he was really and solely concerned with protecting the civilians in the Donbass, then he could have gone in and just invaded that area. Now, that would still be illegal, I think, but it certainly would not be as, as damaging as what he's doing now. So I don't understand what he's doing, and I'd like to hear more from you know, specialists in Russia what the thinking was. And certainly I think what he did is something that forces inside Russia that are on the hawkish end of the spectrum have been pushing for for a long time. And I'll just say this too, and then I'll, I'll open this up to calls. If Russia had done in Canada what the U.S. did in Ukraine, then what Russia is doing right now in Ukraine is something that the U.S. would have done in Canada a long time ago. They would not have waited this long. If Russia had backed a coup in Canada, installed pro-Russian leaders, flooded Canada with $2.7 billion worth of weapons, refused to take off the table the prospect of Canada joining a hostile military alliance, basically blocked the implementation of the only peace accords on the books that could solve the problem. You, the U.S. would have done this a long time ago. The U.S. would have bombed military sites in Canada a long time ago. So that's just something worth considering. And because I'm not a Western chauvinist, I have to take everyone's concerns seriously and treat everyone equally. And I just do not think the U.S. would tolerate what it's now condemning Russia for for doing. So that's my quick take, and I'll open it up to calls now, and I'm very excited to hear everyone's thoughts. So, Tom, you are first. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. How you doing? Um, I got a few questions. Well, I'll make it quick. But um, what do you think Putin's endgame here is? And, I mean, does Russia want to occupy Ukraine and annex it in different part of Russia or I mean and do you think that Putin 
uh, an opportunity to do that now because, you know, I don't think that we're prepared to have a ground war in Europe, Eastern Europe against, you know, NATO's not and the U.S. isn't and Russia is. Well, you know, on the on the latter point, that's kind of the, the really tragic part of this. And this is why I think the U.S. policy has been so cynical, because they've known all along that they're not going to defend Ukraine. They can't. Russia is a nuclear armed power. But yet they've done everything they can to encourage Ukraine to have a confrontation with Russia. Inside Ukraine, Zelensky was elected on a mandate of making peace. He was going to basically implement the Minsk Accords. That was the bargain of his candidacy. And he won with overwhelming support. But he faces a major problem. And I haven't even mentioned this yet, but it's, it's, it's worth stressing. Inside Ukraine, there is a considerable far-right force. Uh, I don't know what the percentage of the population that identifies with it is, but certainly inside the Ukrainian armed forces, it's a very influential force. A good example of that was that recently when there was a media stunt you know, put on for Western consumers where you know, Ukrainian forces are training great-grandmothers with rifles to fight the invading Russians. That was a few weeks ago. Who was putting that on? That was the Azov Battalion which is a neo-Nazi militia that's uh, embedded in the Ukrainian armed forces. And the fact that they're the ones running this media stunt for Western media outlets, and NBC News was among those to get enlisted in this, speaks to their influence inside the Ukrainian armed forces. And anyway, whenever Zelensky has engaged in talks about Minsk or other proposals to make peace with the rebels in, in, the, in the east of the country, these right-wing groups have held demonstrations. And, and, and they've also threatened Zelensky with another Maidan coup, like the one that overthrew Yanukovych in 2014. And so Zelensky, I see, is kind of a sympathetic figure. He is a political outsider. He's a former comedian. He came in talking about defying the establishment and making peace with the rebels. And he immediately faced far-right forces basically threatening a coup against him. And the U.S., instead of basically using its influence in Ukraine, to tell the far right to go away and to say that we stand behind Zelensky and his implements and his efforts to find peace, they haven't. They've basically sided with the far right. So it's very cynical what the U.S. has done is to encourage a confrontational posture inside Ukraine. But then ultimately, when, you know, the rubber hits the road to leave it out to dry. And even today, you know, Biden didn't, didn't even implement the harshest sanctions that he could. Because he realizes for him it will have domestic consequences if energy prices rise for the U.S. So this idea that Biden cares about Ukrainian sovereignty and cares about the Ukrainian people, it's, it's, all the more of a, it's, it's just been all the more of a fiction given that they're not even willing to stand behind what they've pushed Ukraine into. And by the way, another example of this, and this is what makes this whole thing just so ridiculous, the way that Ukraine has been used – by Western elites as essentially a piggy bank. A lot of Western consultants, whether it's Paul Manafort or whether it's Democratic operatives, including Carl Craig, who's the former chief White House counsel for Obama, have made a lot of money in Ukraine, um, a lot of money off of Ukrainian oligarchs. And among those to profit also was Joe Biden's son, Hunter. And it speaks to Biden's key role in creating this entire mess that Hunter was appointed to Burisma Right after the coup, because Burisma felt as they needed to curry favor with with the Biden administration. And the fact that they chose to hire Joe Biden's kid speaks to Joe Biden's significant influence in the 2014 coup and thus his responsibility for what's happening now. 
And in terms of Putin's endgame, that was your first question. See, I don't know. That's the problem. I don't understand the rationale for his decision to invade now. And it's not something I predict that he would do. So I don't know. I, I, I understand I, that. But I, I wonder quite, how is Biden going to come out of this looking strong or good? I th- I, that's another thing. I mean. <sighs> yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. I think this is I don't think this will end well for him because Russia has overwhelming force inside Ukraine. That also was part of the folly of this whole project to arm Ukraine to the teeth that no matter how many weapons you send into Ukraine, you can maybe kill some civilians in the rebel held areas, but you're never going to beat Russia in a conventional war. And we've seen that today with Russia causing a lot of decimation to Ukrainians military. It sounds like Ukraine's a lot of Ukraine's military has been wiped out. So um, I don't know how Biden will come out, but if I was betting, I don't think it's going to be good for him. I just hope it doesn't escalate and, uh, you know, to something more major. But thanks a lot for taking my call. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Al, you are next. Okay. We lost out. Rudy, you're next. And when you come in, just remember, everybody, there is a microphone button in the bottom right. So to unmute yourself, you just click that. Hello. Hi. Uh, hey, Aaron, how's it going, man? Thank you for accepting me. I've been listening to you since the days at the the Real News, man. You are the man. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so, just I was talking to um some liberals who, you know, just like. Uh, who I thought would be understanding because, you know, we've had conversations about U.S. meddling in the affairs of other people and the banana Republicans and, you know, everything. But I feel like when we get to the present day, there's something that glitches in in people that they cannot recognize that, you know, these aren't things of the past, but that you know, we it's continued and so we when we start talking about what's happening in Russia and I'm like okay so whatever you believe happened or is happening that's one thing right but there's another side and that's the Russian side and we have to hear what they're saying you know what is their perspective because and also not only that but I I I joined an African group for example and a lot of them are cheering what Putin is doing because they're like, oh, look at what, the, look at what's happening. Look at what the Americans are finally being shown, uh, you know, shown up, being like stood up to, um, talking about, you know. So we don't, not the whole world agrees with us. So we have to deal with that kind of stuff. And people are just so delusional about what the capabilities of the United States are what the United States can do right now and I just don't think that really is going to help because we need to somehow get our government to back off that's part of the solution yes um, the one half is yes um, Vladimir Putin is doing something wrong but the other half is that Vladimir Putin can go to um, a significant population of Russians and citizens of the world and make the claim that the United States scares the mess out of us and they've got bases to be able to point at. They got 
so many countries that they can point at and say, look at what the United States does. And look at all the promises that they've broken from the natives to the, you know, so yeah. it's like we have yeah. to deal with that kind of stuff. And people here on the regular don't, uh, they don't understand that. And that's, that's the liberals. So then we have to work with the, with the right wingers. And I understand that some right wingers are against us. But how do we pressure our government to be responsible when we have liberals who on the dot can be activated to be the most right-wing people you know like it's like 1980 1984 yeah. like it's very yeah dot. yeah it, listen it's very tough and and um russia gate has made it so much more difficult it's one of the reasons why i was so adamantly against it because it russia gate normalized this dynamic where if you want to be considered a liberal person who doesn't like right-wing figures like Trump and supports, you know, quote-unquote liberal values, then you have to worship the CIA and venerate Cold War dogma where diplomacy with Russia is criminalized and anything that can somehow um, address Russian concerns is deemed to be Russian talking points and Russian disinformation. It totally normalized that on the liberal left in ways that I haven't seen in in my lifetime. So it's, it's a real challenge. And I, I don't have any answers except just trying to find out as much information as you can and, and keep speaking truth. There is a hunger for truth out there. There are more people who are increasingly disillusioned with the mainstream media, given how many times they've been lied to, whether it's Russiagate or the Iraq war or so many other things that, you know, there is a hunger for alternative sources of information. And there is a recognition that U.S. elites, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, don't have average people's interests at heart. So, you know, I just there, there, there's no, unfortunately, magic solution. And certainly all the propaganda that, that is used to sustain the uh, the um, U.S. hegemonic machine is, is just very difficult to overcome. And it's very, very ingrained. And there's so many incentives to go along going along with the Kool-Aid, drinking the Kool-Aid. But for people who aren't, um, you know, for people who have who have integrity. All we can do is is just speak our truth. You know, I, I wish I had more something more constructive than that to say. No, no, I, I swear you're right, and I and I, I hope you're right that we're sort of headed the right way because some days I do feel like okay, we broke it through, but it was how the heck did people really believe that? Like, but people really are unable to really rationalize it's it is insane how maybe maybe it's facebook maybe we've just broke where our abilities to like focus is broken but it was it's just how in it's crazy that they can go from oh yeah but the ukraine they have the right to join whoever they want and nato i'm like okay so if that's the position can we say that cuba has the right oh no we can't do that but why you know, it makes no sense, but yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. We can go on forever, man. I appreciate the community here. I'd lose my mind if it wasn't for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks, thanks Rudy. Uh, thanks. thanks. Uh, I, I feel the same way. Uh, so thanks for calling in. Lee, um, you, Lee, you are up next. Hello? Hi. Hi. Thank you for all that you do. I'm a seasoned, you know, beyond war person. I grew up in the Marine Corps. I am, you know, it's in my bones to do everything we can. And 
you're right. Realistically, all we can do is speak our truth. But beyond that, this just feels um, beyond catastrophic because there's there's so many people in power who are beefing up that war budget. And I mean, my father, who's a Marine officer, like a lifer, he, you know, was a Bernie voter and a, and a Ralph Nader. I mean, like the, my friend, Tony McPeak, who is former chief of staff of the Air Force, he wanted Bernie. I mean, the people who are in the know, even if they have some authority, seem to have no influence because of what you were just talking about with Ukraine and the Bidens, I had to take a doctor call. You may have already talked about some of this, but are we forgetting that nuclear bombs are just all over the place now? And it just takes one little mistake or one unhinged person and that's it. You know, I mean, what, what other conduits? I mean, you have Tulsi speaking, but nobody's listening to her. So many of us are just singing to the choir I listened to the Russian fellow, the trigonometry, forgive me, I forgot his name, but he was, you know, clearly heartbroken. I caught a little bit this morning and I was surprised at how much he thinks we really need to step up because they're not going to stop at Ukraine. They're just going to go to every other country along the border after this, in his view, because he has relatives over there. Well, look, I just don't buy this view that Russia is going to expand to other countries. It just makes no sense. They've been talking about Ukraine and NATO expansion to, to Ukraine for the last eight years. They've given many, many warnings. Um, Putin warned about this in December. There have been similar warnings from the Russian establishment before. It's very clear why Ukraine is so important to them. It's you know given its location on the border and given the ties between the other countries. And I just see no indication that, that there's an attempt to go um, – beyond beyond ukraine and um and but yet, and this yeah. could have been done how could this have been forgive me i'm just I, ah i'm really glad that you're doing speaking and that you have your and you were raised by your parents who i also admire um very much you know because i've got the father who with the ptsd from korea and vietnam i mean our we're all suffering from trauma because of all the warmongering and so everyone's mental health is is being destroyed with with this yeah. stuff yeah. so i mean how can we at least start a draft you know something that'll get the attention that's what happened with vietnam you know the the draft is what finally i mean aren't we going to end up getting inserting ourselves in this thing with troops at some point well i I look. I I can't make that kind of prediction because I just don't know. Yeah, I know. I, the thing is, I it's know. um the, the U.S. only fights adversaries generally that it can defeat easily. That's why the U.S. invaded Iraq. The Bush people knew yeah. that there was uh, no WMDs there, and they didn't mind sacrificing yeah. their soldiers for that because they knew ultimately that they would win. But because yeah. because it's very hard to win a war with Russia because ultimately it means a nuclear holocaust. I'm not sure about yeah. that. I'm not sure about that, but certainly what the U.S. will continue to do is because a draft would raise the prospect of another type Vietnam-type anti-war movement, they're going to keep the population sufficiently deprived so that people have no other choice but to join the military if they want health care, if they want to join the college. I mean, that's how the system works so yeah, efficiently. That is, and it's, you're right. And it's, and it's uh, look, it's a, 
the absence of any political force right now in Congress who will speak out clearly and forcefully without any caveats and need, need, needs to cater, like uh, feeling compelled to cater to this demonization of Russia and Putin and willing to recognize the key U- U.S. role in the coup. I'm thinking especially of Bernie Sanders, who I've never heard even mention that yeah. there was a U.S.-backed coup in 2014. Even now when he talks about it, he says, you know, he says reasonable things about not expanding NATO. But if you're not willing to acknowledge the facts and if you're yeah. not willing to challenge, challenge the premise for all the propaganda that is used to sustain this war fever, you're not going to be effective. And you're actually going to ultimately help the, the forces of, of war and hegemony. And right now there's nobody right now in Congress willing to speak the truth. Um, Dennis Kucinich was somebody who was willing yeah. to set up on principle. And Tulsi Gabbard, although I have my, dis- my strong disagreements with her now, the direction she's going, she on certain key things like the Cold War with Russia and Syria – yeah. She was very principled, and she got yeah. you know um, demonized for it, and basically chased out of Congress. She was yeah. called, a, but so it's people have internalized that message. But is too. she is she getting swayed on on some of the? Is she leaning towards the Republicans now? Well, I mean, I mean, it's look, it's she's only one person, so I don't want to make yeah. too much of her. But you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, she's that's what's weird about this time is because there's no kind of like strong and courageous anti-war force on the left, really. A lot of anti-war people are going to the right. I mean, Tucker Carlson is a right yeah. wing, but he's owned the anti-war sentiment in mainstream media, which is just very surreal. And you it have- surreal. And, and, um, and Tulsi Gabbard is, you know, she's speaking at CPAC in a few weeks. I, 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 I saw she's, that. Know. So that's Good just, Lord. if it, it's kind of like Trump of 2016. If you have a Democratic Party, that is again that thinks everyone should just go watch Hamilton, and everything will be great. Mm-hmm. Then a con man like Trump, who pretends to who care about the working class, even if people can see through it, they're they're gonna go with him because at least he's acknowledging their existence. Whereas the Democratic Party is becoming this coastal, or is this coastal elite party that doesn't even acknowledge the people that used to be its base. You know, so it's you know in that situation, you're leaving people with very little choice but to if they want to be politically involved, to go over to the right. It's, so it's, it's hard to talk, talk to people. Maybe you're writing something that um, summarizes what you're talking about today that I can forward to people. It just, it, because it's hard for me to articulate it well, and I'm yeah. not current, but enough to give details and statistics. But I was raised as a child on Smedley Butler, mm-hmm. you know, War is a Racket. War is a Racket. Yeah, I mean, that... I, I still have copies that I give to people just, I don't know, on principle, but um, this just feels like we need to be creative about getting the attention of somebody, like you say, who is maybe in the pockets of somebody in, in Congress or who can expose the Biden Ukraine issues that you were describing um, because they're, they're, the Democrats still aren't providing, I mean, the military is our only jobs program. Yep. So, so what are, I mean, they're saying what we need to do is show that the Republicans are going to make things worse. It's never that they're going to have the support in Congress to do anything for the people, you know, universal health care, et cetera. So, and, and, and Clint and Hillary won't go away. No, Hillary will not go away. 
Hillary, <laughs> Hillary will not go away. No, she won't. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, look, it's a it's a bleak it's a bleak time politically. I think that's a takeaway from from our exchange tonight, Lee. But you know, the, look, things things change very quickly, and and I for, for personally, yeah, I I draw inspiration from some of the poorest places on earth, like Haiti in the late 1980s, early 1990s. They, you know, one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, centuries of decimation by neocolonialism, first by France and by the U.S. And they elected Jean-Bertrand Aristide, a, 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 a priest who actually represented the poor majority of the country. Now, of course, he was quickly overthrown in the U.S.-backed coup. But the fact that Haiti could do it says to me that we can... Yeah we can rise to some level approaching Haiti maybe one day soon, you know, history changes. Aaron, take good care of yourself. Take really good care of yourself. And I'm glad you have a calm, you know, you know, nature so that you can persist with this. And I hope all of you, you know, including Rogan and Dor and crystal ball, you know, all of you who are paying attention and actually care about the truth will continue to brainstorm together so that, I mean, there's momentum. If if Rogan can have 12 million people, and you know the the mainstream media is losing, I mean, it, it could be there's a tipping point if all of you keep pulling together. Here, here, listen. Let's draw some hope in CNN and MSNBC's declining ratings. Seriously, that's a positive yes. sign. That's very a very good. positive Thank sign. You. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Okay, Dave, you are up. Hi there. Hi. How are you doing today? Thanks for calling in. Uh, thanks for calling in. It's a you know it's a it's a tough day, but we're <laughs> we're here. Well, let's uh, start at the beginning, I guess. Uh, you know, you were talking about uh, where you felt this all started in 2014, uh, but uh, I uh, recently read uh, Pepe Escobar, and uh, his assumption is actually that uh, this started back when the big new Brzezinski got a report on Russian ballistics in 2013. Okay. And uh, that was the motivation for the neocon push uh, through Newland and Kagan and others. Okay. Well, look, I, you know, all due respect to Pepe Escobar, I'm not sure I buy that. I mean, at that point, Brzezinski was in his late 80s, right? This is, what, 2013? And he was out of government. And, um... I mean, maybe he, I'm sure he, and I, he certainly influenced the new generation of neocons like Newland, who brought the, uh, who brought the coup to Ukraine. But I, uh, you know, I, whatever. Well, I, you yeah. you do realize there was an actual report back then that came out talking about uh, the new Russian ballistic as well. Okay. All yeah, right. that came out in, in the U.S. think tanks and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, I also wanted to talk about the beginning of the, uh, uh, you know, separate, uh, the rebel uh, enclaves in, in Ukraine uh, and uh, how that's directly related to the Odessa massacre and how that's not brought up at all in any yeah. discussions about why they might have a, an incentive to do what they're doing. Right. And I'm glad you brought up the 10,000 or so uh, civilians that have died over in eastern Ukraine in rebel-held territories recently. That was really great. Uh, I appreciate that, by the way. Uh, where where is Newland right now? Anyway, where is she in all this? I haven't followed her movements, but she's in the Biden administration, so she's playing a key role. Obviously, I mean, she played such a major role in 2014 
Yeah, there's, there, there's no way she isn't heavily involved now. And just to explain Odessa, and I'm glad you brought it up because I didn't mention it before, but in 2014, you had essentially dozens of um, people uh, burned burned alive in an arson in in the um, in the uh, in Odessa, Ukraine, uh, and that was one of these sort of pogroms carried out by the pro-coup forces and. The victims, like the ones in Odessa, are the ones that we're just not allowed to talk about. It's like Chomsky and uh, Chomsky and Edward Herman in their book *Manufacturing Consent* have this term "worthy and unworthy victims." And worthy victims are the victims that are killed by U.S. geopolitical enemies, and they get heavy media attention and long profiles and you know nonstop tributes to their lives. But if unworthy victims are those who are the civilians. Uh, that we're either killing directly or that we're helping helping kill. And the people of of the Donbass, the people in eastern Ukraine who speak Russian, who identify with Russian, who voted for Yanukovych and then were upset when he was overthrown in the U.S.-backed coup, they're unworthy victims. And so massacres like the one in Odessa are just not acknowledged in Western media. As or, are and, – and also, you know, also not acknowledged are just the – you know, as I mentioned before, the huge, the mass proportion of civilian casualties, at least since 2018, and I would bet since the beginning, but certainly what's documented is since 2018, 81% of the civilian casualties in the Donbass war have been on the rebel side. Which I estimated would be about 10,500 over that, actually. Uh, how do you feel about uh, Russia's targeting of NATO-assisted uh, sites throughout Ukraine? What are your thoughts on that? They've tar- well, I didn't know that. They- I-, I haven't followed that. They've targeted NATO assisted sites. As far as I've heard, yeah, these are all sites where NATO has uh, or U.S. forces has uh, assisted Ukrainian forces uh, built uh, infrastructure, yada yada. Yeah, that type of thing. And that these are very specific, directed, targeted attacks. Uh, you know, okay. And well, look, message, message essentially to uh, you know the Western side about you know expansion. Well, look, how I feel about Russia's military operation is that it's illegal. Ukraine's a sovereign country. Mm-hmm. Zelensky was elected. Now he was elected in the context of the post 2014 coup, and so there is this this major U.S. role over the country, even in the even when they hold elections like the one that elected Zelensky, but. They are a sovereign country. Russia violated Ukraine's borders, and and I think their invasion is illegal, even if they're targeting U.S. or NATO-assisted facilities. But I will also but, say that this this whole thing could have been avoided. Russia has laid down its red lines for a long time. For the U.S. to say that NATO membership is off the table and that we're going to pressure Kiev to implement the Minsk Accords would not have cost the U.S. anything but basically rolling back hegemony just a little bit in one part of the world. Um, as I wrote about last month when I published an article called The Ukraine Crisis is Sponsored by U.S. Hegemony and War Profiteers, I said basically that the, there's an, everyone knows what the resolution to this crisis is. Everyone knows how to avoid war. It's that the U.S. drops its bid to make Ukraine cannon fodder, a, a proxy state, but they didn't. And you know what's so interesting is if – you know. I was always skeptical of these U.S. intelligence claims that a Russian invasion was imminent. But if the U.S. was so convinced that that was happening, then that makes their decision to refuse to take Russia demand seriously even more criminal because they could have avoided all this, you know, at the cost to them of nothing. 
let's not overlook the fact that they still have yet to produce this intelligence that they claim they have. Where is it? Well, that's true, too, but... Right, and, and, and to have their intelligence served, but where is their intelligence? I mean, right, well... well photos, matter, you know? Right, so. well, certainly, certainly, certainly claims of, for example, uh, false flags with uh, crisis actors and staging a coup in Ukraine and installing a pro-Russian government, that has not materialized yet, but... On the claim that Russia was poised to invade, that was correct. That was right, and they're proven right on that. Now, well, that's, you could, that's you could, you, that, that's possible. But I also think that that also might be an assumption as well. I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, you can read, you know, all kinds of Russian press talking about their position about Ukraine, the force doing some type of operation around Chernobyl, which is why they've obviously seized that area now. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's a little bit more that we haven't seen in this situation about uh, Ukrainian aggression that might have also justified Russia's recent action. Okay, well, look, for me, the uh, in terms of what in terms of what precipitated Russia's actions, to me, it's that long history that I laid out. But you know, look, anything is possible, and perhaps we'll find out something else. And it's just a you know, just a matter of waiting to see what else comes out. Um, oh, and one it, last point, yeah. I just wanted to. Did you happen to see that uh, Associated Press article about the survey on America's feeling uh, Democrat, Republican, about whether or not? I did. Uh, it was it was 26% of Americans, only 26% of Americans believe that the U.S. should be playing a major role in Ukraine, which, you know, again, speaks to the political ineptitude of the Democrats for, you know, not just under Biden, but under Trump, where one of their primary concerns has been an obsessive focus on Russia. Even when you know it rep- U.S. voters repeatedly tell them that they don't care, it's not their top concern to ensure that Ukraine is a proxy state where the U.S. can pour in weapons and get Hunter Biden a job at Burisma. It's not Americans' top concern, and very understandably. Mm-hmm. Yet also, they- I'd, like to, I'd like to bring up the fact that uh, in, in, in relation to that, that the, the U.S. press has been pretty much saying that anybody that's supporting Russia is a Republican. Of course, uh, I find yeah. To be absolutely repugnant and, yeah. and absolute propaganda. They, they're totally negating all of us on the left that uh, have been warning about this for eight years now. Yeah, uh, it's 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 uh, you know it's criminal. Let's, and and let's, it's uh, only and it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. Uh, Dave, thanks for the call. I'm going to go to the next caller now because I want. There's a long line of people, and I'm yeah, I'm actually going to try to speed up this. Thank you, Dave. I'm trying to speed this up because I want to get to everybody, or at least as many people as I can. So, Tim, you are up. All right. I don't see Tim. Can you guys still hear me? Give me a thumbs up if you can. Okay. Tim, you're there. All right. Tim, go ahead. Tim, if you're there, you have to hit the microphone button in the bottom right. And I'm going to give you five seconds for that. There you go. All right. I think I'm in. Yeah, you're in. Hi. First first time using the app, so I was having uh, some technical difficulties. Fair enough. We've all been there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, operator error for sure. Um, first, I'll say it's a pleasure speaking to the buzzsaw. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, secondly, and I am not 100% sure of the validity of this, but I've seen, and take this with a grain of salt, 
Jackson Hinkle tweet that um, Kremlin has come out with two demands for a an agreed-upon cessation of action. And then I haven't been able to watch the video, but I've seen it. There's a, a video on YouTube by RT that states two simple demands for a limited Russian incursion to end the special coverage. And supposedly those demands are that, and it sounds like it's very similar to the Minsk Accords, uh, Ukraine must guarantee neutrality and that they cannot hold foreign military weaponry on its territory. So that I don't know if that was incorporated into Minsk or not. Um, for the sake of argument, let's assume those um, terms are accurate. Do you think there is any chance that Zelensky would agree to those terms from Moscow? I mean, from where I sit, I don't see what choice he has. Uh, but I'm not a, you know, I'm not a military strategist. I don't know what other possible options he might feel he has, and I don't know what the U.S. is going to tell him. And I think right. that's a very major factor here. Um, I don't think he acts without U.S. orders or at least U.S. approval. I just don't. I don't. Um, I, I think there's a lot of not, evidence to suggest that he definitely does not act without yeah. um, U.S. influence at this point in time. And then. Uh, Quick follow-up question. I don't want to be on the line too long because I know you're going to try to get through everybody. What What do you think the process was with Zelensky moving from a peace candidate to coming thus far to embrace the West, embrace NATO and the U.S.? And essentially, I, I, I guess you alluded to it earlier, um, the influence of the um, the far-right neo-Nazi um, battalion. I don't know how much. They have influenced him, but I don't know if you have any insight into that progression from being a peace candidate to a kind of a, a, a West puppet. Well, you know, I, I have no insight beyond the – obviously, the Ukrainian far right is a major force inside Ukraine. They're influential, and they're inside the military. The military has a very big problem with – having far-right forces within it, the Azov Battalion is incorporated into the military. And so yeah. I have no doubt, I think it's totally fair to assume that Zelensky, after coming into office, has realized the danger he was in if he implemented the Minsk Accords. And look, he, was, he faced direct threats of a Maidan coup, that the same thing that happened in 2014 would happen to him once again. And so that had a major impact, and I think U.S. influence had a big impact too, because, and we know this too, this is what is documented. I've talked about this, I think, on here before, and I've written about it in my most recent Substack article. But basically, it's a really illuminating article in Time magazine that came out recently by Simon Schuster, who you know follows Russia and Ukraine very closely. And he spoke to Zelensky's first national security advisor, so one of his top officials. And this advisor told him uh, that in 2021, early 2021, when Biden came into office, Zelensky immediately shut down three major opposition TV networks, pro-Russian TV networks. Mm -hmm. And he also uh, ordered the house arrest of the opposition party leader, which, by the way, was the biggest opposition party inside of Ukraine, which speaks to what a divided country this is. So, yes, you have far-right forces. Yes, you have Zelensky's party. But the major opposition party was pro-Russian, which just speaks to how divided this country is and why, how insane it is then to try to force the country into one direction when it's clearly split. Um, along very along very clear lines, 
right? Pro-Russian and uh, anti-Russian. So um, Time reports that when Biden came in, Zelensky, when he shut down these opposition networks and jailed the or, or ordered the House arrest of the opposition leader, um, that this was conceived, according to Zelensky's top security aide, as, quote, a welcome gift to the Biden administration. And that this welcome gift was essentially tailored to fit the U.S. agenda. And that's a very strong sign that basically the U.S. told Zelensky what to do. And after that time report, um, you started seeing Russian forces gather on the border. It's pretty much in direct response to this crackdown on the Russian-tied opposition. That basically Putin saw this as another move against him and another move to to further uh, make life difficult and it's just basically marginalized Ukraine's Russian-speaking population. By the way, Russia was also banned, I think, by, um, by the Ukrainian government, the, the, the Russian language. So, I mean, all these moves have been taken by Putin as a threat to him, and he's responded. And this is why, if it comes down to a, a, a outcome where Zelensky agrees to the terms that were on the table before, it just speaks to how all the more just how completely useless this whole thing was and how it could have been avoided. Right. But I don't think there was any chance that he would have agreed to those terms. And I completely agree with you that they should have lived up to the Minsk Accord. But like you said, considering the influence of the far right wing um, and the army and uh, his close ties with uh, the U.S., all that being said, and considering if Putin had just come into Donbass, um, that still would have been viewed as breaking international law and an invasion of a foreign nation arguably could you could you could one make the argument that what putin is doing is the best option well i'm sure there are people inside russia and i know there are people inside uh, uh putin's cabinet who believe that i just you know again without knowing all the internal details, what happened at all these negotiations, most recently over Minsk, where, you know, just last week, where Zelensky's government refused to negotiate with the, with the um, rebels. I, you know, I, I don't know what other options there were, and, but I have to believe that there were other options. For example, I mentioned before, you know, uh, Russia has leverage over Europe. It, it has these pipelines that provide the energy for much of Europe. Putin could have shut those off to say, look, like we're not playing around. If you don't take NATO membership off the table, if you don't stop arming uh, this uh, proxy war on our borders, we're going to shut off energy. Or and or he could have, and, and this might sound silly, but he could have made a speech directed at the U.S. people, addressing his concerns and asking them to stop supporting neo Nazis in Ukraine. Which, by the way, right. speaks to just speaks to just how hypocritical and ridiculous the U.S. posture is. Because if you watch CNN or MSNBC, or you listen to Democrats. What has been their top priority for the last year? It's nonstop talking about January 6th and, and, <laughs> and the far right and, and, the far, and, and sermonizing on the danger of the far right. Well, well they won't com- acknowledge that there's a far right um, neo-Nazi movement no, in they Ukraine. No, they won't. They won't because they're on their side. They're siding with the Absolutely. far right in Ukraine over Zelensky's platform, which he ran on, which right. was making peace. So that's how committed right. the U.S. is to – Actually, challenging the far right, where in, in Ukraine, and I also suggest that they they wanted um, Nord Stream two to be shut down so that they could increase their natural gas sales. 
Yeah, they wanted to increase their sales, but honestly, I think the main motive there is Nord Stream 2 would have continued the process of integrating Russia with the rest of right. Europe. And right. that's a disaster if you're a neocon in Washington who wants Russia to remain this, this mortal enemy so you can justify uh, military expenditures and just constantly have someone to fight. The prospect of Russia being at peace with its neighbors is just it, – it's a bad thing for the war lobby. So that's why I think shutting down Nord Stream 2 was such a priority for them. It looks like they won that one, you know? For now. For now they have, yeah. We'll see if they take them off swift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Aaron. Thanks so much for your insight and your time and everything you do. Thank you, Tim. I really appreciate that. Todd, you are up. And Todd, if you're there, just hit the microphone button in the bottom right to unmute yourself. Okay, Todd, you have five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, sorry. Uh, Tim, you're up, and remember to hit the microphone button in the bottom right. Hey, am I here? Yes, hi. All right, cool, man. Thanks for uh, taking the call, Aaron. Thanks for everything you do. Listen, just try to keep it quick. Uh, mostly just... Uh, all right, Tim, 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 I can't, I can't hear you. So, um, I'm going to have one moment. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yes. Anyhow. Yeah. So instead of talking about, instead of having these large discussions about whether or not what Russia is doing right or wrong. I'm worried about the tack we're taking in the face of all this propaganda in the U.S., right? And what we're facing with coming off of Russiagate and this potential, uh, this potential aggression towards Russia with the United States. I mean, we're U.S. citizens here. And what the tack we're taking and the tack a lot of people on the left seem to be taking are, is that, is that I'm sorry I was wrong about what Russia was going to do. Russia's plan, uh, Putin's plans in Ukraine. We were wrong about that. Uh, we need to be talking more about uh, whether or not we are, and I'll parlay this into a. Uh, <clears throat> okay, Tim, something's going on with your. Okay, I'm going to try to make you there you go you're back in all right tim i'm gonna ask you to exit the queue but then come back in and i'll, I'll let you back up okay because there's something glitchy going on okay for revolution chris you are up hey aaron thanks for taking my Colin. Colin. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, one real quick question for fun and then something more subject appropriate. Can you give us any, I see Katie's in here, maybe she can give a thumbs up if this is permitted. Any uh, hint as to who's on the show tomorrow morning? Uh, I'll just tell you. I, I don't need to keep it secret. It's uh, Branko Marchetich, who is a writer for Jacobin, who wrote a great article that I actually linked to in the show notes for this episode 
about the Maidan coup in 2014. Awesome. Yeah. Look forward to it. Yeah. Um, so... Two conditions or two objectives, I guess, that I saw um, that I saw last night uh, from Putin. One was to decimate uh, Ukraine's military. Something like that. Oh, you're just talking. I was talking. You can hear me, right? What's going on? Yeah, looks like we. Looks like we. It's like that's not me. I yeah yeah. It's like like we have a. Looks like we have a glitch here that I um, I'm going to try to resolve. Okay, I I believe that's probably the last caller speaking who was on before, and somehow he's entered his way back into the logs. Okay, I think it's gone now. So go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. All right. So I saw two conditions. I, I'm going to start again because I'm not sure yeah. what came through, what didn't. Um, two conditions or two objectives rather that I saw Putin was saying he wanted to do. One was to decimate. Uh, Ukraine's military, I, I don't fully agree with that objective. I'm not sure that's really the U.S.'s business, but I don't agree with that. Uh, second, though, is, is to eliminate all, all Nazis to go, uh, as, as in the Quentin Tarantino film, killing Nazis, and uh, as Brad Pitt's character said. But um, and I, I, I'm sympathetic to that. Um, why is that? You know, I, and I saw that, I think, from... Um, um, why can't I think of his name? Medford, Med, Medher, the British dude. Um, Richard Medhurst, yeah. Richard, yeah, there it is. Thank you. My brain was lapsing for a moment last night, and he had on, um, another journalist who I'm not familiar with. Um, I believe they were talking about that. Why is there no discussion in the U.S. media about that being, uh, you know, put out as as Putin's objectives and and some sympathy on, on that one front. And why isn't you know Zelensky, as a Jewish uh, man, sympathetic to that objective as well? And and why has he not pushed, I think, harder to eliminate the Nazi aspect of of the Ukrainian military? And then just as a second aspect of this question, um, uh, and a little more fun. Uh, what did you think of, of um, uh, middle-aged McCarthy Cenk Uger's tweets today and how he trended on Twitter and, and, and the sentiments that he's offered on the subject? Well, unfortunately, I missed Cenk's tweets because I had the guy on mute. So I, uh, I missed out on, I missed <laughs> out on whatever fun it suit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of um, – uh, well, look, in terms of Putin's stated goal of denazification, it's – look – there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine, and yes, they have been attacking the civilians of the Donbass. But I just don't think it's Putin's business to take care of Nazis in Ukraine. Either you believe in the UN Charter or you don't, and the UN Charter bars the use of force against sovereign states, and, and Ukraine is a, is a sovereign state. So I, um, I just can't. You know, it's not something that I can endorse. Not that not that it matters what I what I endorse or not, but I just. Again, there has to be some kind of uh, baseline for international norms, and I, I think the UN Charter is a pretty good start. But yes, in terms of Zelensky, he's scared of these forces. I don't obviously he's not a, a Nazi sympathizer himself, but they're this they've been they've been empowered by U.S. policy. I mean, they, they were the muscle behind the coup in 2014, and the U.S. has continued to arm Ukraine, knowing that their armed forces are full 
of neo-Nazis like the Azov Battalion. And there was a measure in Congress in 2018 uh, that was, um, that was uh, uh, proposed by John Conyers. And initially it was, stri- it was stripped away, but it finally did succeed. It got in, and that banned U.S. assistance to Azov. But as everybody knows, once the weapons arrive on the ground in Ukraine, there's no way really to enforce this provision in the same way that during the dirty war on Syria, the CIA, you know, formally was against arming Al-Qaeda. But yet when Al-Qaeda occupied Idlib, took over Idlib, the province where it now has its safe haven, that was because uh, they, they got a hold of, of American anti-tank missiles. So it's um, uh, that's just uh, the reality. And um, they have a huge amount of power and Zelensky unless he has someone more powerful than neo-Nazis backing him, is not going to be able to confront them. And the force that could really be a counterweight to the neo-Nazis is the U.S., and they've chosen essentially to take the neo-Nazis' side. So it's awful. Real quick, what, what, what the uh, McCarthyite said was that the right-wing sympathy or, or against you know, pushing hard to fight the war uh, or, or involve ourselves in Ukraine, uh, especially I think Tucker and, and some others, um, was uh, was based in racism and and uh, and support of a white leader. Um, so just to fill you in, you don't need to go search it out now. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, look, <laughs> the, the, I, I, you know, again, I just there's a reason the, there's a reason I have that guy on mute. There's a reason I have that guy on mute. Um, all right. I want to get to your next call. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Tim, you're up. Hey, Aaron. Um, I'm going to try and approach the uh, quickness of uh, delivery that you had on Tucker Carlson the other night. Uh, and I'm going to fail miserably, but I'm going to try and jam in as much as I can possibly say in a quick amount of time. So I want to say three things. Can you hear me or? We can hear you. Okay. So. But you have to be quick because I have a long queue and I want to get to everybody. Yeah. I I understand. So I thought you completely nailed the introduction, but at the same time, it was kind of funny at the end, you kind of killed it because you said you can't understand, you know, you gave the litany of, uh, efforts by the Russians to actually uh, deal with this in a civilized uh, diplomatic manner for, since 2007 to now. And then at the end of it, you said you can't understand why the Russians have actually taken active measures, kinetic measures in Ukraine. And so you actually answered your own question just backwards, right? Like, they're doing this because no one in the West is listening, right? Okay, and my counterpoint to that was, as I mentioned, I think Putin had other options that are non-military. And I won't go through them again, but I laid them out. And I just think if you want to resolve a conflict, you should do everything you can to avoid war. And I don't think Putin, from where I sit, and again, I don't know internal Russian politics. I don't know everything that went on behind the scenes. It just strikes me as quite plausible, at least quite plausible, that Putin had other options beyond beyond doing this. I I, I'd ha- I have to disagree. Okay. The Europeans are hostages. 
They have yeah. no they have no sovereignty whatsoever, uh, and that's why the Russians were only initially w- willing to talk to the U.S. The U.S. has no skin in the game. They're not on the even continent of yeah. the, that this is happening in, and therefore, you know, I think it's uh, pretty obvious why the Russians had to move. They were they were dead serious about it from the beginning, and they were serious in their language and in their documents and in their presentation and in their professionalism about it. It was completely ignored in the West because the U.S. population doesn't fucking care. Um, The people who actually pay the price have no representation because we have a garbage neoliberal world world situation where the EU, you know, has no ability to uh, talk for its population and therefore... This is where we end up. Like, I, I don't think it's actually that surprising, really, in a way. The second thing that I really wanted to say is the there's a really simple principle here that no one talks about, which drives me nuts. And that is, look, if you are a small country, let's say country A, right, you live next to a large and powerful country B, which is also in the target of, you know, the crosshairs of another large country, let's say C, 2,000 miles away, guess what? You can't choose whatever um, military alliances you want. You just can't. Like, as a Canadian, if we made an alliance with China, right, I would expect hellfire to come down on us, right? Like, it should be, it's really that simple. You know? Yeah, uh, I, uh, I agree with that. The, the, this idea that we have to protect the sacrosanct uh, right to join any military alliance you want is ridiculous because the U.S. would never allow it to anyone uh, even close to its borders. So, yeah, of course, that's, that's a joke. And, of course, if you think that it's this high right to join a hostile military alliance, then, then it's also a right for a country to defend itself against that hostile military alliance. So, yeah, no, um, I, I agree with you there. I mean, Stephen Cohen put it so beautifully. He basically said the test of whether a, a, an additional member should, to an alliance should be, should be included is do they add to the collective security of the existing members of that alliance or do they not, right? Yeah. And... Clearly, Ukraine fails that, as does Georgia, as does half the countries now in NATO, fail that miserably. I totally agree. Okay. Uh, And your third point? Can't remember. Okay. Well, uh, (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Thanks for taking the call. Thank you, as always, for calling in. Okay. Peace of mind. You are next. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for all the work that you do. Um, my main question is about sort of the evidence that we might have gotten beforehand. There's a lot of like official say journalism. I'm sure you're familiar with that. I'm just wondering, did you see anything that you felt was actually um, harder evidence, anything that was more falsifiable, verifiable? Um, in the lead up to this, I see a lot of, you know, there's a lot of folks saying like, oh, you know, well, intelligence told us that this would happen. But um, to me, that sort of misses the point. The point would be like, doesn't matter what they say. We need evidence behind what they say. And I'm a little bit worried about the consequences of that type of thinking, you know, especially in light of a lot of other types of officials, say journalism. I, I see that more and more. Um, does this lend credibility to that in the future? And I think the, the way to prevent that from happening is probably to to stick to, you know, even if something happened, 
um, that's great. Let, let's use sort of hard evidence instead of having to point to intelligence officials. So just wondering um, if you're familiar with something that we could look at or no, if this there was, was no, something. No, there, no, there okay. was nothing. And in fact, yep. Zelensky complained that and other, and other Ukrainian officials complained that they weren't receiving any solid intelligence. And European officials also said, this was in the Washington Post a few days ago. I'll, I'll write about this soon. But they said that essentially what the U.S. was telling them intelligence-wise was no different than what they were saying at the White House podium. So wow. It's, wow. It's, quite, it, it's quite possible, actually, that the so-called intelligence really just became a self-fulfilling prophecy, that the U.S. Um, just basically knew that if they kept rejecting Russia's demands long enough <laughs> and kept stoking war, that, that Russia would eventually just say, fuck it, and invade. I mean, that's quite possible, you know? Yeah. Uh, but um, I, again... I do have to acknowledge that I was I was among those saying that the U.S. claims that a Russian invasion was imminent was just really suspicious, and I was doubting it, and I was wrong on that. So, yeah. uh, however they came about it, their prediction did turn to be correct. It did, it did, yep. and maybe it's yep. a lot more cynical than than we know on the surface, but at least for now, that's what we have to acknowledge. Yeah. And I, I want to thank you also for I, I see a lot of the time that's not acknowledged. So just acknowledging that I know you acknowledge something similar with hoping that uh, Biden would be better vis-a-vis um, maybe Syria or Yemen, those, uh, other issues as well. And, and you've been really forward in saying, um, you know, sometimes those don't happen. So I think just that level of honesty, I, I think, is is awesome to be able to hold ourselves to that level when we see a lot of dishonesty in, in other places and other journalistic outlets as well. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Matt, you are up. And Matt, if you're there, hit the microphone icon in the bottom right. There you go. Yeah, I'm here. Hi, Aaron. Thanks very much for taking the call. Um, I'm just I'm crafting a question. I know it was next in the queue, but uh, I'll, I'll try it out. Just thinking about, I do some work with, with um, aspects of the government from time to time, U.S. government, and it just it's so obvious that the, the neoliberalization of you know, the world is, you know, also happening inside the U.S. government and there's so much more short termist um, and and and, and uh, a lack to of being able to have a longer view or inability of being able to have a longer view because they're so much more beholden to, I think, private interests than they were during the Cold War. And I just, I'm just kind of bouncing this off. Is there I mean, do we still think there are, you know, the George Kennan's of the of of the world? Um, inside the the, the 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 heights of the Department of Defense and the and the <clears throat> National Security Council that are to be able to take a long view, or you know, are we just seeing a a fractious? Uh, hey, we can sell weapons to Ukraine. Uh, it's obviously going to be unpopular and costly to put a ground war out, and this is just them ambling through it with some you know money to be made along the way as a almost a. Yeah. their own internal banana republic to uh, well yeah, yeah look in terms of who's on the inside i don't know i can't speak to that but what i can say is if you look at leaks to the media compare say obama to biden during obama during the dirty war in syria there were people on the inside who realized that this was madness that the u.s was arming a al-qaeda dominated insurgency and there were leaks about that a lot of stuff mm-hmm. came out now of course the media did such a great job at burying the truth that 
the U.S. public still didn't find out about the reality, but still the information was there for those who wanted to look for it. And look, the, the best example was after the chemical attack in Ghouta in, in August 2013, where p- hundreds of people were killed with sarin. And Obama had said that this crossed the red line and there was Obama was going to go to war. He was going to bomb Syria. He, he um, was making, making the case to the public to go to war. Both parties, or at least members, prominent members of both parties were calling on him to bomb, for example, John McCain. And uh, there, were, there were leaks. Someone leaked out that from the White House that, James, that, that U.S. intelligence had gone to Obama and told him that the case that the Syrian government did this attack was not a slam dunk. And that was an obvious reference to the infamous slam dunk that the CIA <laughs> claimed that they had uh, about Iraq and WMD. So that was people on the inside trying to stop a war because they knew that the intelligence that they had showed that the Syrian government was not guilty. And there's plenty of subsequent reporting that has completely shown that to be the case from Seymour Hersh. And I recently covered a study at um, on my show Pushback where a group of researchers actually located the trajectory of all the different rockets that hit Ghouta at the time with Sarin, and all of them point back to the exact same area inside insurgent-controlled territory. So, um, but fast forward to now, and are there leaks coming out to undermine, from inside the U.S., that undermine the Biden's war fever? No, there's nothing. Hmm. Everything has come from Europe, and I would guess that it's coming from France and Germany, who don't want this, but are pretty powerless. So that's bleak. It's very bleak, and I don't know what the answer is. Thank you. Thank you. And by the way, look, I mean, look, just, just look at Obama. Obama was the president, right? And he, in Ukraine, this is, a, this is a great example. In Ukraine, after starting the proxy war there with the 2014 coup, he then came under heavy pressure to send uh, Javelin missiles to Ukraine and, and all types of other U.S. weaponry. And he said no. Mm-hmm. He actually did something positive in one of the rare <laughs> moments of his eight-year administration. He said no because he didn't want to further inflame a proxy war that he started. And he also knew that just like in Syria, these weapons would end up in the hands of far-right extremists. So he said no. That was very brave. And people like William Taylor, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who's now every single second on MSNBC and CNN, he was the star of the Ukraine Gate impeachment saga. William Taylor was accusing Obama of, quote, impeach, uh, sorry, appeasement. That's what Bill Taylor said about Obama, that Obama's policy was tantamount to appeasement. And Obama stood out. And, uh, but now he's gone. And then Trump came in, and Trump immediately reversed the Obama policy because Trump was being called a Russian puppet. And Trump has no principle, so what does he care about sending some more weapons to Ukraine? So he did. And now that is the dominant bipartisan policy, is to treat the Obama policy of not inflaming a proxy war and not arming neo-Nazis further um, to treat all that as appeasement and to support then more weapons to Ukraine. And that's why there was recently an article in The Intercept that says that, that uh, where they asked Robert Menendez, who was pushing through this new measure to arm Ukraine, are you going to include provisions that ban assistance and, and weapons to the Azov Battalion? And he said, I haven't really thought about that, which means no. So that's where we're at. But ultimately, as you said it yourself, we're not going to get pulled into, well, I don't think we get pulled into a ground war. We will lose the ground war. And, what, you know, Democrats are thinking about their next election. That's not popular. So it's just going to be a bunch of weapon yes. loading up. Yes, that's exactly right. As bleak as that is, that's exactly right.
I, I just if you have a chance, I want to get the next caller. But it would be great to hear more about the internal politics of Russia. Um, you know, learning more and more about yeah. the internal politics of Ukraine is great, and obviously, uh, but but anything you can say on that, and I'll I'll sign off. With, on well, that. honestly, I can't say much on that because I just yeah. don't. I'm not. Yeah. It's, not, it's not my area. I mean, I cover Russia Gate. But that's an American phenomenon. And yeah. actually, you know, it's in terms of the internal Russian politics. What I do know is that Putin, you know, he's known as this far right figure, but actually inside his own inside his own political spectrum, there are powerful people who are far more to the right and far more hawkish than he is, which is which is scary. And, um, you know, he's been actually keeping them at bay and they've been accusing him of being soft and being uh, a puppet of the U.S. for not being for not doing what he's doing now much earlier. That's the internal reality of Russia. That's about as much as I know. And I wish Stephen F. Cohen was still here to teach us about the internal mm-hmm. Russian dynamics, but he's not. So I, I will try to explore this on pushback my show. Soon, Wonderful. As soon as I can. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. Next caller is Carrie Mache. Hey. Hi. Hi. Um, can you give some directions on how to deal with people saying the Ukrainian president is Jewish, therefore he could not be supporting Nazis? Just look at how uncontroversial it is that neo-Nazis are a major part of the Ukrainian armed forces. I mean, everyone's written about that. Even the Atlantic Council, which is you know NATO's de facto lobby, had an article a few years ago. It's called this. It's called Ukraine's got a real problem with far right violence. And no, RT didn't write this headline. So I don't think Zelensky supports neo Nazis. He's just afraid of them. And unfortunately, okay. The, okay yeah, but what yeah. about Victoria Newland? I mean, her father is a Jewish Ukrainian. That doesn't technically make her a Jew, but she's supporting Nazis. If you're saying that you know, the Nazi support is coming from the U.S., then... Yeah, well, again, the, the U.S. is happy to, su- to support Nazis if it serves their interest. There's, there's no, the, they've done that since the, set of, since the Second World War when they, you know, managed to take former Nazis and put them in countries all over the world, including in Latin America, to help, you know, uh, run torture centers and spy on and, uh, leftists and all that stuff. So that, that goes back a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But what do we, what can we, like, give us a, a like, lot, like a headline. What, what can we do? Like, they really don't, they can't hear it. They can't hear it. He's well, Jewish, just, therefore there are no Nazis. Then, then I would just direct people, like, look up the points when Zelensky has faced protests from far-right neo-Nazi forces inside Ukraine and how they're essentially okay. threatening to kill him. Uh, they're, okay. they're, th- they're threatening another Maidan against them. And okay, it, show- okay. it shows the position that he's in, you know. Um, so it's not that this Jewish president supports neo-Nazis. It's that neo-Nazis are supported tacitly by the U.S. and Good have yeah. major influence inside Ukraine and no one's stopping them. Um, okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. And um, the other thing is, are you aware that the Donbass were stateless and that they carry Russian passports? I was aware of that. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, a lot of people are not aware of that. I'm glad you are. Uh, the last thing is, um, 
I don't think a lot of people are talking about, you know, that Russia just became the president of the uh, UN Security Council on February 1st. For this month, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes. I mean, that rotates every single month. So February, this is their month. Right. Yeah. And how that might be uh, one of the reasons they started. Uh, okay. Well, yeah. I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I, I personally don't buy that, but you know, who knows? Who knows? Why don't you buy it? Because I just don't think that's there. Like it's, it, it's, it's largely a symbolic thing. Cause basically it means that you chair the, the meetings and you have maybe more influence over what topics to discuss, but it's not as if they can stop the security council from meeting over, their actions in Ukraine. I mean, that's going to happen. And so I just don't think, I, I really doubt that this attack was timed with their chairing the UN Security Council. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Okay, Daniel, you're next. And Daniel, everybody, if you look at his name, you'll see he is my brother. So welcome, brother. <laughs> Hello. What's up, bro? How's it going? Can you hear me? Yeah. Great. Um, great show. It's, it's helping fill in a lot of, uh, you know, blanks for me. And um, to, to the last caller, I mean, one thing I could suggest if you're looking for uh, an easy uh, conversation ender with people who raise that, uh, there is a country on earth that has a lot of Jews in it whose government is very fond of neo-Nazis. It's called Israel. And uh, there's nothing, there's not, I can, I can confirm from years of being a Jew and observation that there's nothing encoded in our genetic profile that bars us from sympathizing with any um, powerful uh, or, or sort of chest beating group. If we're in a state of, you know, fear or uh, wanting to be supremacists. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, Listen, you on that just, point, on that yeah. point, let me, let me read you quickly a, a headline from Haaretz, an Israeli newspaper from, yeah, 2000, when was this from? This is from 2018. Rights groups demand Israel stop arming neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And you know what's funny about that? That was in June, uh, that was July 2018. Yeah. And that was a few months after Congress passed this measure barring arming of the Azov Baton, the neo-Nazi Azov Baton. So look, there's a history in the 1980s especially of Israel being used by the U.S. to do things that the U.S. is formally barred from doing. So after, uh. Congress, after Congress found out about the Contra War in Nicaragua, Congress uh, and, and also the Reagan support for other genocidal uh, forces inside of uh, Latin America, Congress barred assistance to these forces. And so then the Reagan administration simply turned to Israel and got Israel to do it for them. So yeah. I would not be surprised if that's, you know, uh, Israel's certainly been sending a lot of weapons to Ukraine that have fallen in the hands of neo-Nazis. And I wouldn't be surprised that that was also being done in the context of this client-state relationship where Israel is just doing the U.S.'s dirty work that it's not allowed to do because the pesky law in Congress got in the way. Yeah, Israel's yeah been used to launder funds, weapons, and also to train all kinds of militias that you know, right. would, have been, would have been very friendly with the Luftwaffe and the, and the SS. Yeah. Um, before I ask my question, I just wanted to say you, you mentioned the squad and Bernie and their disappointing, you know, mealy mouth equivocations. I just caught I just saw a tweet from Cory Bush, which is not 
you know, I don't think it's perfect, but I, I feel like it's maybe closer to the perspective you're trying to uh, uh, espouse. So here it is. Putin's murderous dictatorship is killing people right now in a brutal and illegal invasion of Ukraine. No surprise there. Now is the time for us to act with moral clarity. We must use every tool to save lives and promote dem- diplomacy, not military escalation or inhumane sanctions. And it's those last two words that surprise me because I rarely hear even the most progressive U.S. politicians um, sort of own up to and critique the actual uh, impacts of the, I mean, you hear, you know, sanctions just roll off AOC's back. So I, I was somewhat impressed by that. Yeah, I mean, it's, look, mentioning sanctions is great. But again, as I mentioned before, how many years will it take for progressives in Congress to acknowledge that there was a coup backed by the by, by the Obama administration in 2014? Oh, it'll never happen. How long will that take? I mean, how hard it'll, is it? It'll, it'll, yeah, it'll never it's, happen. It's on record. There's a, a recorded phone call of Victoria Nuland picking the next Ukrainian leadership. It's it's not controversial. Everyone knows you saw what, yeah, but you saw what happened to Bernie when he tried to talk about Latin American coups and whatever. Like, it just they just won't go there. I just don't see them ever acknowledging that this is part and parcel. It's not an aberration. It's part of U.S. foreign policy. Right. We, well, in, let me say this. So, 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 so Corey Bush in her tweet. So, so she opposes military action, right? The, yes. Part, okay. So yes. let me quote to you from AOC's tweet, which I, this was, this is honestly insane. She goes, finally. Any military action must take place with congressional approval. Yeah. So AOC norm, is not a, the, yeah, yeah. AOC yeah. is saying that military action might be possible. What she's basically saying is that World War Three is okay. It just has to happen with congressional approval. Look, That's Aaron, what you said. Aaron, breathe a big sigh of relief. Norms are back. Norms and protocols. Now that Trump is gone, we can get back to the norms yeah. of you you know, Congress approving illegal wars. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, yeah, I, 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 that's exactly what I was contrasting Bush's tweet with. I thought it was better. So here's my question. And it's about Europe and, and, and the way Europeans are feeling. And obviously, they're not a, a monolith. But I have friends in Europe uh, and on social media today. There's just a lot of uh, heartache and fear. And, and now, clearly, the history of Europe is being used cynically by Western media propagandists. There's a lot of hyperbole. Um in terms of, you know, who Putin is compared to, you know, the great monsters of history. There's a lot of hypocrisy and there's a ton of amnesia. People talking about the biggest, you know, foreign invasion since World War II. Well, you know, transparent horse shit. That said, and I'm not, you know, neither of us are military strategists, but I wonder if you have a sense of what sorts of spillover dangers Europe is or might actually be facing. Like if I was a European which of my fears right now in the current situation, maybe not like theoretically down the line, but like right now or one or two steps from now would be rational, reasonable based on the, the, the reality of the balance of forces. And again, you're talking to someone who doesn't really understand war games or any of that. So shoot. The people who are going to suffer most are Ukrainians. And by the way, they've already suffered a lot. I mean, I've mentioned the 14,000 people who've died in the war since 2014, vast majority on the rebel-held side, the pro-Russian side. By the way, in, uh, Ukraine's seen a record migration crisis because this whole thing, this whole war has decimated the economy. It's mm-hmm. seen among the biggest migration levels in Europe in, uh, in many, many years. So it's Ukrainians mm-hmm. who will suffer most, and possibly they'll be you know, uh, a major refugee flight, although, I, again, it's, it's hard to make that prediction. 
But uh, in terms of the impact on Europeans, I think higher energy prices probably is the biggest consequence. I don't see, look, I, again, I don't accept this cartoonish view of Putin as this Hitler-like figure. I mean, he's, again, right. whatever you want to say about what he's doing, it's a response to a crisis he didn't start. And it's a response he's actually been warning about for a long time. And, yeah, uh, he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who has been hell bent on regional domination. It's just not how he's behaved. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks. That's hey, helpful. Thanks for calling. The my first, pleasure. Yeah, the second Mate on my uh, call-in stream. The first was Dad, and and I'm I'm thrilled that you joined, Daniel. I hope you'll call in again. Oh, I'd I'd, I'd be glad to. It's. It's one of my favorite entertainment programs and info, <laughs> infotainment programs. So I never miss it. And, well, right. sometimes I miss it, but I always watch it afterwards or listen afterwards. All right. Take care. Peace, everybody. Talk soon, brother. Danny, you were up. Danny, if you're there, there's a microphone icon in the bottom right. You just got to hit it to unmute yourself. If you are there, and if you're not, We'll move on to Brian. So, Danny, you got five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. All right. Brian, you are up. Hi. So, uh, big fan. Um, thank you for doing this. Uh, and, you know, I've been watching a lot of the coverage and things you've been doing, including recently you spoke to a deputy um, diplomat uh, from Russia and him and other people I've seen interviews with have been very much in the line that this wasn't going to happen. Um, so I'm curious if you think that there was any deception where these people left out a loop or did things just happen so quickly that, uh, that there's no, you know, that nobody knew until yesterday that this was going to happen essentially. Well, look, there's two options, right? First option, he was lying and saying that the Russia was not going to invade. Second option is that he didn't know um, and that, and also that this decision was not made at that point. Um, that's all possible, and I, I'm not going to get inside his head. I, um, Regardless, I do think it was important to let a Russian official speak to a you know, Western English-speaking audience because in U.S. media, you just don't really hear anything from the Russian perspective. And whatever was happening behind the scenes with the Russian government and their plans, he got a chance to lay out his grievances, the grievances that were not being addressed. And because those grievances were not being addressed, uh, that's why we're in the crisis that that we're in. So um, I don't know personally what he knew and didn't know, and it doesn't, you know, at this point I I can only speculate, but... um, it's also just quite possible that Putin made up his mind and didn't didn't tell didn't tell anybody except for a very very close circle. So I think that's the best I can I can uh, in, in terms of you know what happened there. That's that's about all I can say. Yeah, I, and I agree with you. And I, I the, the sad thing is it plays into that idea that we shouldn't be listening to those people because they're just going to lie. You know, anyhow, whether that was the case or not doesn't sort of matter. It, it becomes kind of moot. Um, which is an unfortunate thing because we should be hearing those voices. Absolutely. Um, I, but look, wondering... but look, but like, notice how hypocritical it is because when U.S. leaders lie to us constantly, whether it's about the Russian bounties in Afghanistan, Havana Syndrome, Russia Gate, the Iraq War, 
Qaddafi distributing Viagra pills to his troops to commit mass rape. I mean, no one ever proposes that we stop listening to them. And so I, I think we have to apply uh, Russian diplomats and any other diplomat the same courtesy because the fact is that's the government of a country and we should listen to them. doesn't mean we accept their claims on faith, but they at least deserve to be listened to. I agree. And sort of on that note, uh, just my final thing, do you, do you have any plans to speak to anybody coming up to follow up and get more information on this kind of tease anything you're working on or try to set up? Uh, I'm trying to account for the gaping hole of Stephen F. Cohen. It's really, really difficult. If Stephen F. Cohen were still alive, I'd just be talking to him every single day because to me, he was just an authority on this topic. And so I'm, I'm just trying to speak to as many people as I can and be useful, offer something different, you know, uh, offer a perspective that the rest of the media is not covering and that needs to be heard. And so I, I don't really have any specifics I can offer right now, but, but I'm doing my best. You know, I, I usually find pretty good people and I especially try for pushback. I especially try to focus on former officials because they have the most insight into what goes on behind the scenes. And recently I've interviewed Doug McGregor, who was uh, a former senior Pentagon advisor and predicted exactly what would happen. And I, you know, I doubted what he said, but he said that essentially Putin has no choice because the U.S. will never uh, give an inch. They will not take NATO off the table, and they will continue to fuel this proxy war. So he predicted uh, about a month ago or two on my show, Pushback, that this would happen. He was right. I'm sorry, which person was that so I can watch that episode again? That was Douglas McGregor, who is a, a retired colonel and a former senior Pentagon advisor, and I will link to that in the show notes Thank uh, you very of this episode. Yeah. Okay. Annie, you are up. Annie, if you're there, there's a mute button in the bottom right that you just hit to unmute yourself. And I'll give you five seconds. Five, four, Three, two, one. Okay. Annie, I hope you call back because we might still have time. All right. Adam, you're up. Hey, Aaron. I'm calling from New Zealand. Uh, my partner and I are big fans. Um, do you see any situation where the U.S doesn't send ground troops in, but strong arms European NATO members into a ground war? I don't see that, no. I just, I, if I was taking bets, I would not bet on that. Because they can't win a ground war against Russia. Russia has such an overwhelming advantage because they're, on top of you know, Russia's capabilities, they're right, physically, it's their border. Right? Yeah. So they can, they can resupply. And again, I'm not a military man, so... I don't want to speak like I know about the stuff, but it just like from uh, without knowing anything about you know how wars work, just physical location. I think you can say it makes a very big difference, and so Russia just is in the position to win a ground war, especially because they have nukes. And Putin alluded to that in his speech when he threatened consequences to anybody who tries to get involved. So no, I don't I don't see that as a real prospect. Yeah, so that kind of it's it's a one war then, right? Russia is going to win militarily. Yes, they are. 
Absolutely. which leaves either, I don't know, like a very short operation, kind of in and out, I don't know, or like a really protracted guerrilla-type war, maybe, if, if Ukrainian citizens are armed, which is what I've been seeing in the media the past few days, you know, that the the average uh, Ukrainian is now kind of uh, getting guns and stuff, yeah. and they're motivated to defend their homeland, then uh, could drag out. Yeah. Well, it was reported recently in Yahoo News by a reporter named Zachary. I'm just going to get his name just, just to give him credit, and I'll link to this too. Zachary. Uh, I'll find his name. It was reported recently in Yahoo News that the U.S. has been training and arming an insurgency inside Ukraine for many years. That this program, I think, began under Obama. It was expanded under Trump. Because, of course, it was expanded under Trump. Because while everybody was screaming that Trump was a Russian puppet, his administration was overseeing, in its policies, a radical escalation of tensions with Russia. And so, of course, they ramped up the CIA program to train a Ukrainian insurgency. And, of course, who are Ukrainian insurgents? They're going to be far-right forces. That's always who the U.S. has to go to for an insurgency. (laughs) The idea that they're going to get bakers and doctors and dentists to volunteer for their insurgency is a joke. That's what they tried in Syria. And then we saw the truth where the insurgency was dominated by al-Qaeda. That's why Jake Sullivan wrote to Hillary Clinton 10 years ago, al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And Ukraine is no different. It's going to be far-right extremists who are being trained and armed by the U.S. And that the program has been going on for a long time. And um, that is what they'll continue to do because they're not going to actually invade. All right. Thank yeah, you. Zach, and Zach Dorfman is the, is the name of that reporter who broke the story, and I will link to his article as well. Cool. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Adam. Okay. Al, you're up. Hello. Hi. Sorry. I've tried uh, many days. Um, thanks a lot. Uh, really big fan of yours, and um, I just so first of all, I'd like to thank you very much for you know saying I'm sorry initially about the mistake. I think that very few people have the courage to do that. So thanks. And uh, also, you know, you mentioned that uh, the Charter of the UN that you know each country has their uh, uh, intrinsic right to decide what they want. So I, I'm just going to make a suggestion. Maybe maybe it'd be a good idea to get some people from Eastern Europe to talk on your show from all sorts of perspective to get their side. Um, my family's from there. And, you know, I'm getting different different vibes. And um, so, for example, I think it's each country's right to decide who they're going to develop, develop an alliance. I think it's a bit hypocritical for the Western or Western people, whether they're right or left, you know, to tell whether, you know, Poland or Hungary should or should not be part of NATO. I think that's, that's totally wrong. Um, so if these countries want to be part of NATO, it's up to them. Um, and I think to, to dictate, it's, it's, it's basically arrogant. You know, say you can't be, there's a terrible history in that part of the world. And um, so that's number one. Number okay, let me respond. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me respond to that. Right. In, in a perfect world, sure, yes. What's the problem with a country joining whatever military alliance it wants? The problem is, if that military alliance is essentially defined is, is, is essentially defined by who it's targeting, which is Russia. 
then that means that Russia is going to take steps to defend itself when people join that military alliance, especially if it's on its borders. So it's not as if it's not as if NATO is a is a uh, is a country club where people come together and share recipes and have dinner and talk. It's a military alliance, which by definition, anybody outside of it is going to be an enemy. Because if there's any kind of conflict with that country, then everybody else in the alliance will come to its side. So Russia has a vital national security interest in not allowing NATO, a hostile military alliance, on its borders. And it's said over and over that it will defend itself against that. The principle it's laid out is that no one's security should come at the expense of someone else's security. Well, and that's I, not I, – I think that's kind of like an American point of view. But I would, I would counter that that's actually not correct. Uh, it could be an alliance just be for countries to decide to defend themselves, whether it's whoever it is. And they can. In fact, there was a point where NATO, uh, Russia was do, do you think join. That, do you think that NATO is an alliance for countries just to defend themselves? Do, do, do you want to assert that knowing NATO's I, I want history? to say that from the point of view of Eastern European countries, absolutely. Okay, I'm asking you. I think it's I'm asking you. Okay, I'm asking you. I'm asking you. Right. Do you think NATO objectively? Is just an alliance for countries to defend themselves. Um, you know whether there's bullshit going on in at NATO or in Russia. Absolutely. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry. You answered my question, and I'm going to answer it for you. When NATO, no, I'm sorry. Of, uh, okay. of, of an Eastern European country, absolutely. Okay, and I'll and tell from you the point. Okay, I, okay, no, okay. From no, the point of view of objective right, facts, right? When NATO attacked Libya in 2011. And overthrew its government after, by the way, it told Russia that all it was going to do was enforce a no-fly zone in Benghazi to protect the civilians there. That was not a defensive measure for anybody in NATO. That was Absolutely. an offensive. I agree with you. And I the agree. same thing, the same thing with Kosovo in 1999. Uh, that was an offensive. Agreed. So the the Agreed. idea that the so that makes the idea that NATO is strictly a defensive alliance is a joke. And it's not true. I, I agree with you. Listen, I, I don't disagree with you. And, and we can have a conversation about that because I, you know, there's a lot of things I agree with you. But I'm just saying is you have to have the point of view from Eastern Europe and you have to understand where they're coming from, because they went to you know, a lot of these countries. They were in a very difficult situation until under the Soviet Empire. It wasn't a piece of cake. OK. And number two is, you know, the, what Putin is doing right now. He, okay, but wait, no, 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 no. Uh, yes, that's true. And I know that very well because my family fled Soviet-occupied Hungary. So I right. certainly know that rule under the Soviets was awful. But here's the problem. The Soviet Union is over. It ended in, it ended in, in, in 1990. Okay, it's done. Now it's Russia. It's one country. But yet the U.S. has still kept pretending is that nothing has changed. And they've made it worse by extending NATO to Russia's borders. And in that situation, Russia is inevitably going to respond, which makes the only solution to stop NATO expansion and agree to neutrality, because or else you're going to have situations like this. I, I you know, with Ukraine, I totally I agree with you. This is, It's a different situation. Uh, but in terms of countries in Eastern Europe, they're joining NATO I, I, this is just off the table. That should not be a, in a discussion. I think it's really arrogant for Anglo people to dictate what what Slavs should be doing. I mean, or or people that are living these. They, okay, well, just, look, look, very arrogant. Hungary. It, okay, okay, look, 
Hungary is already a part of NATO, so that's that's done. The question is part of Poland is part of NATO. I mean, all these yeah. countries. Are okay, part of NATO. so so we're, so 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 let's okay. You know what? Fine. So let's not argue about something that's already an accomplished fact. Uh, Poland, Hungary, they're in NATO. Okay, they're in there. But now the question is Ukraine. That's the crisis we're in right now. Okay, well, I agree with you. With Ukraine, it's a, it's a different ballwax. And I, and I agree with a lot of stuff that, you know, you've said and what you've said about Libya. Libya. I totally agree with you. In fact, I would suggest that you should invite uh, Sidney Blumenthal to, to basically give us a bit of the story that he never, you know, he testified in Congress under, you know, closed doors. And we still don't know what that testimony was about. You should invite him. You know, he's the dad of your of Max, so invite him and let's find out because it's the same actors right now that are creating this mess, which I totally agree, in Ukraine. And uh, and I think people are profiting. I think Putin and Biden are profiting from this because the prices of gas are going up. The, you know, it's it's almost like an alliance, honestly. But that's what I'm going to say. And uh, But I'm just saying that Eastern European countries are allowed to decide for themselves their own future. And if they want to do an alliance and they could be mistaken or whatever, it's up to them to make that decision. And I just find it, you know, there was, you know, Scott Ritter wrote some very nasty things in, on that uh, uh, subject. And it's it's upsetting. OK, so if you agree that every country has sovereign rights, then then by definition, if you're saying that people have the right to join whatever alliance they want, then anybody threatened by that alliance and you can't argue that countries are not threatened by NATO, given its history and they have the right to take measures to defend themselves. And then you have chaos. See, I don't want Russia to be invading Ukraine at will. I'd rather, yeah, have, a situation, I'd rather have a situation where the prospect of a hostile military alliance is just taken off of the table. But, it's, but not, also, it's not needed I mean, anymore. It's not, but, it, don't it's make not, Putin, but we shouldn't make Putin any better than on our side. Because, you know, look at his history. Did you read the history that he posted? It's, uh, it, you know, that's the other thing. Anglos come on, on the show without re- really reading the history or knowing anything about the history of Eastern Europe, where, for example, Belarusia, Ukraine, those are multi-ethnic countries for thousands of years until very recently where they were partitioned. So what Putin is saying, that they're all part of Russia, that never existed. They were always multi-ethnic uh, parts of the world sure and, sure, and sure, so sure. and yeah, so he's he's creating this new narrative to to justify what he's doing and so yes it's not at all uh, it's not the soviet union but you know what they did they took the the symbols of the soviet unions and they replaced it with Tsarist and, and orthodox symbols it was a deliberate thing but it's the same mechanisms and i i love russians i really i really like them but i'm just saying let's not be naive here they have their own interests, and they're allowed to have them, and they're allowed to defend themselves. But so do other countries have the right to do that. Okay. And I think Let's, that's all right. that's, okay. that's okay. all I was going to say. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Thanks you guys do a great job, by the way. I appreciate that. Thank you. And thanks for the call. Scott, you're up. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I know that most of the conversation has been about Russia and the U.S. and Europe to a degree, but looking at it with a wider lens, I wondered if you had any insights on how this conflict, the actions that Russia took today will impact things globally. Um, What do you think the reaction of China or toward the Middle East or even parts of Europe that may not want to be embroiled in the conflict? Um, And will this exacerbate you know, the proxy wars and conflicts such as Syria, where the U.S. and Russia have competing interests. 
Yeah, I mean, the question of Syria is a great question because you have a major U.S. military occupation there. So speaking, by the way, of respecting people's sovereignty, you have the U.S. against the wishes of the Syrian government occupying one-third of Syria, stealing its wheat and oil, and Russian forces are very close by. So this conflict over Ukraine threatens the prospect of a conflict between these two sides in Syria. So it's a very big danger. I just, it's hard for me to make predictions. I'll just say that it's very dangerous. Okay, Scott, thank you. I'm going to keep moving because we have a lot of callers and limited time. So thank you for calling in. Nasser, you were up. Hello. Hey, Aaron. How are you? Hi. Uh, yes. So my question is that um, first, to use the liberty of liberty, Sean Penn is in, in Ukraine and making a documentary. Oh, good. Well, I'm sure the people of Ukraine will be thrilled to know that Sean Penn is on the case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my question is that because I've, I was going through some reading, actually, and uh, even like people like George... George Cannon and uh, these people are so warned uh, the West and the use, uh, you know, and these administrations that don't expand uh, the NATO eastward. And, um, but they didn't, but nobody actually at that time listened to the, I mean, to people like, they don't like him, George Cannon and, and, and people like that. And, and I also read that, like, there's a one, like, very a close aide to Yeltsin. Um, Igor Gerard, he actually, he went to, um, he, he actually warned and went to the Canadian embassy and said that, well, and, and said to them, that, hey guys, look, if you guys expand the NATO, that's gonna weaken us. Yeah. By us, he meant, he, uh, I, I mean, he meant, you know, the liberals at that time. Yeah. So why, why didn't that, I just, just, it just, it puzzled me, you know, why nobody had listened to, to all these people, actually, both American and at that time, you know, the Russians. When you're a global hegemon, you, you don't operate on a rational level. You're only driven by, I think, hegemony and this feeling that you're this exceptional nation that can do whatever it wants and that you're, the world is bettered by you just expanding your power and control as far as possible. That's, I mean, it's not rational. It makes no sense why the U.S. has been so hell-bent on establishing this client state in Ukraine to join NATO when they know that joining NATO is not a prospect. I mean, by the way, Germany and France have been blocking that. Ever since 2008, Germany and France have been opposed to Ukraine joining NATO, and that's been a major obstacle. But the U.S. has continued this quest. Why? It's not rational. It doesn't help anybody. But it's just what happens when you're a hegemon. The imperatives of hegemony it's, are very powerful. Thank you so much. I don't have anything to say. I'm okay, well, thank you, Nasser. Thanks for calling in. I'm going to try to rush through as many as I can. So, Benjamin, you are up. And, Benjamin, if you're there, you hit the microphone icon in the bottom right. And if you're not, I'm going to move on to the next caller. Johnny, you are next. Aaron, can you hear me? Yes, hi. 
Oh, nice. Hey, uh, long-time admirer of your work uh, ever since your Real News days, and uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Hey, uh, I'm going to go for a highly speculative, optimistic take. What okay. are the chances that Putin uh, chopping down the Ukrainian military capabilities offers Zelensky a bit more political space? Political space to make peace? Yeah, if he wants to. I mean, yeah. he was elected on a pro-peace platform. It's clear. Uh, I mean, I don't know how long the Russians plan on staying in Kiev. I don't think they want to create another Afghanistan for themselves. Uh, I do wonder if they want to make sure they've basically neutered Ukrainian military, right, where they can't do any real damage, right? I mean, you had those civilians in the Lugansk and Don- Donbass region complaining about artillery shells. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like one of the major aims is to put a stop to all of that stuff. It is, but it is. But the problem with the, the, the only counter argument is that Putin went much further. I think. I mean, again, I without oh, being absolutely. a military expert, he went a lot further. And could you have protected the citizens in the Donbass without going to Kiev as he's done and everywhere else, without knowing? I mean, like, or at least while acknowledging my limitations as a on military matters, I think it's quite plausible that yes, he could have just limited. To a much smaller area, if his if his sole aim was to protect civilians. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and this looks out of character from what I can tell on the history. I mean, in 2008, Georgia kind of made the first move. We didn't find that out immediately in the fog of war, but it turned out later. Sakashvili kind of went out on a on his own there um, and and kicked things off, um, you know, in that war. Yeah, um, and in 2014, 2015, it was very much a reaction to NATO moves. Um, you know, the, the Chechen insurgencies was a reaction. Well, I mean, I'm get, I, I might be straying a little bit too much of a pro-Putin narrative here. But, um, you know, I think there was some argument that he was responding to Chechen terrorism in the late 90s. So I do think this does seem out of character. And I, I'm, I was surprised by the, the boldness and the uh, audacity of the move and how extensive the invasion is. Me too. Me too. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wonder what the long-term plan is because when he makes a when he makes a strike like this, when he makes a a venture like he did in Syria, it's usually a pretty well planned move. Um, you know, the the Syrian intervention by the Russians went pretty well by all of their metrics that they could have picked off. Um, so I, I don't know what the long-term plan is. I can't imagine they're going to want to stay in there for very long. And I do wonder what the political landscape in Ukraine looks like after this. I mean, do we do we just, you know, you know, does Raytheon just get to bill for more weapons to replace all the weapons that the Ukrainians are getting, you know, watch getting blown up right now? Or or where does it go? I mean, obviously, you don't have answers to these. But uh, yeah, again, I it's all like I said, my highly speculative, optimistic take. I hope your highly speculative, optimistic take is is proven correct. And if if it is proven correct, let's please come back on the Colin show and we can celebrate your prescient <laughs> prediction. Appreciate you taking the time. Enjoy Enjoy the rest of the Colin show. Thanks. Thanks, Johnny. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yep. Tim, you're up. Tim, hit the microphone in the bottom right. And if you don't, we'll move on to the next caller. Okay, Hannah, you're up. Are we on? Uh, yes, we're on. Can you hear me? 
Hi, I think Tim's back in the call. Do you want to? Take oh no, it? <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Tim, okay. Tim has I, like a Tim has some kind, of, some kind of super account where he's able to <laughs> transit. It's anyway. We'll work on that. Hi. Hi, I was wondering if you could make some comments on the sanctions and statements that Biden has made um, against Russia, and specifically, I mean, you know, it's kind of obvious that I feel it's a poor statement that. Oh, Putin is in this uh, to reestablish the Soviet Union, and that's that's what we're going to uh, advertise this as all about to the American public. So, yeah, comments on sanctions. Yeah, look, what Biden said about Putin trying to establish reestablish Soviet Union is a joke. No one serious believes that. If he wanted to, he would have gone into Ukraine a long time ago. Instead, you know, to Russia's credit, they have tried diplomacy they have and even in ukraine if you look at the weapons that they've poured into ukraine over the last eight years there was an article recently by two rand analysts in foreign policy talking about that what russia has provided to the rebels in ukraine isn't really not that much russia never used its air force there until now so if they wanted to end the war in the donbass or take over more of ukraine they could have done that a long time ago and they didn't Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of sanctions, yeah, look, sanctions always hurt ordinary people, no matter what U.S. government leaders say. And that's the point. The point is to inflict pain on the civilian population so that they turn against their leadership uh, after suffering enough. That's the U.S. playbook everywhere around the world going back decades. It's interesting, though, that Biden has exempted energy from his sanctions and he's not going after Russia's entry in the SWIFT financial system. He could have done that. But he didn't. And I think that's a reflection that if he does that, that will have serious domestic consequences for him. And it shows how much he really cares about his professed principles that no matter what, he's not willing to endanger his own political prospects. And so I think that's that's the kind of thinking you're seeing behind the sanctions he announced today. Yeah, it's it's very disappointing and leaves me kind of at a loss as an American civilian on how to push back on these sorts of things. So It's tough. And the problem is the problem with the talk about sanctions is, first of all, the term sanctions itself is such a benign milquetoast term. It really should. And I, I use it myself just because it's become so normalized. But what it is is actually economic warfare. And it's also supposed to be, if you respect the U.N. charter, it's supposed to be illegal. A country doesn't have the right to impose unilateral coercive measures, as they're called in U.N. discourse, on another country without U.N. authorization. You're not supposed to basically use your financial power to hurt another country unless there's international support for it, like there was in the case of South African apartheid. But the U.S. has taken that to basically mean that the U.S. can act as the United Nations and impose sanctions on whoever it wants. And that's why you know Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, Nicaragua, Syria... Now, Russia, I mean, anybody that is the target of U.S. hegemony will find themselves facing economic warfare in the form of sanctions. And everyone just presumes that the U.S. has the right to do that without ever thinking, like, what right do we have to sanction someone except for ourselves? Why aren't we facing sanctions for the destruction of Iraq or Libya or the coup in Ukraine in 2014? Those thoughts don't even cross our minds because we've just ingrained so much the right, the inherent right of the U.S. to treat the world as essentially its its protectorate, and sanctions are a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And he's just saying the the quiet part out loud, like we are here to economically crush Russia. Yes. And here's yep. what we're going to do. Yep. Well, I appreciate it, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I got time for a couple more calls. So, Alex, you're up. 
Alex, if you're not there, I'm going to have to hang up on you. And it looks like you're not. So, Mark, you are up. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Excellent. Um, yeah, hello from Australia. Uh, my grandparents, uh, one of them comes from Ukraine. Uh, the other comes from, uh, well, she was Crimean Russian. Um, so, yeah, the situation makes me sad. Yeah. But I, I actually, and my partner's uh, brother, we spoke to him last night, he's in uh, Moscow, and it's so interesting to hear the different take from from in Moscow. He, he's a young guy, so he's probably hanging around young people, and it sounds like, you know, Moscow is not like the rest of Russia. Um, there's a lot of government employment in, in Moscow. Um, so it, it, it sounds like they're pretty... You know, they're not turning it, at least in Moscow, they're not turning it against Putin. They, they see this as, they saw this as kind of uh, inevitable there. Um, but, you know, like like his view is not necessarily uh, representative. I, I just thought I'd throw that in first. Mm. Um, and the second thing is uh, I wanted to say was what the... Um, the left should do about this. I don't think it's um, in the, the international left's interest uh, to, you know, to accept one lot of oligarchs or the other lot of oligarchs to win. I think we, we the left loses in both cases. And um, like I, I'm, I'm actually very hopeful. I, I'm, I, I feel trepidation but also hope um because i i mean i look back i'm an it guy by trade and there was something called the free software movement uh i mean everybody's heard of open source but the free uh, that was kind of like a neoliberal hijack a silicon valley hijack of the original free software movement was which was like an international left movement which acted and uh, created international change and, and it didn't have a leadership which could be corrupted or anything it, it was very decentralized um, and okay, Mark I'm going to have to ask you to just to uh, wrap it up only because we have limited time and I want to get to as many people as I can yeah uh, um, well people should maybe look into the ideas of uh, Roberto Unger he, he's a Mm-hmm. like an academic collaborator with Cornell West, he talks about how the, the left should become more active and shouldn't just allow things to happen. Amen. Um, Amen. Amen. I totally hear that. Mark, thank you for calling in. I really appreciate it. No okay, we're going to take two more calls, and I apologize in advance to everybody who didn't get to speak. I'll do this again very soon, and I hope you can call back then. A, you are up, and you have to unmute, which is the bottom right button, and if you don't, I'll have to take the next call, which is AQ. AQ, you are up. 
Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, yeah, thanks for everything you do. Um, I just wanted to know, I had two questions, but I'll ask my first one. Um, I mean, how would this invasion or special military operation or whatever you want to call it, uh, how do you think that might affect other uh, conflicts and disputed territories? I mean, I know, you know, Noam Chomsky remarked after 9-11 that 9-11 would be used to, uh, you know, by extremists. Uh, it would empower them to, you know, across the world to commit terror on the pretext that we are doing it to defend, you know, our sovereignty or whatever, whether it's, you know, U.S. and Iraq or what, you know, uh, other such conflicts. And so, you know, whether it's, I just heard that Israel uh, used this opportunity to hit Syria again. So whether it's like the nominal allies like Israel with their disputed territories like the Golan or India with Kashmir or, or even, you know, uh, quote unquote official enemies like China. Uh, I mean, the Kremlin knew. AQ, I lost you. I can't hear you. So. Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just wanted to know how this might affect uh, uh, other conflicts, whether, like, how this might empower uh, other, you know, countries to, uh, to, uh, I mean, this is sort of an attack, an attack, uh, not an attack, I would say, but sort of spitting in the face of the new world order, saying that we can, we can do this without, uh, we, we can withstand it. We don't have, we don't have to listen to you. Anymore. Yeah, and yeah. We're serious Look, about yeah, there are many people who are hopeful that this is going to help usher in quicker a more multipolar world, world where we're not in anymore the moment of the unipolar world where it's the U.S. solely running the shots. And the fact that China has this alliance with Russia, China, if you read between the lines, is supportive of what Russia is doing, I think it's safe to say. Uh, there's hope that that will redound to other areas of the world in pushing back on U.S. hegemony. I don't know. I don't know. I think... Uh, I'm not prepared to make predictions that way, but I get that people are anticipating that, and we'll see. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, I had another question, but uh, if if you uh, you know, uh, it, it'll be quick. If uh, if I could Go ahead. just answer. Yeah. I'm just. Uh, I guess I'll I'll be a MSNBC or CNN pundit and ask uh, the the chief question that I'm sure a lot of people is in, in that space are wondering is how this might affect uh, American kind of uh, domestic politics. I mean, the sort of Afghanistan withdrawal was very maligned by the media, but uh, it, it, I, mean, I think the people, because of work like yours and Assange, and to be fair, the the record of the U.S. military industrial complex, people have a skepticism to this kind of stuff. So do you think the attacks on Biden that are, you know, being geared up about appeasement and all that stuff, you think that will stick and that will hurt him politically? So, for like Republicans who are saying he's not being hard enough on Russia, do you think that's going to stick? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, do you think people buy this kind of? Oh, you have to. No, be, no. Uh, somebody, somebody earlier referenced a poll from the Associated Press, which I'll link to in the show notes for this episode, where it was like twenty six percent of Americans think that the U.S. should be playing a major role in Ukraine, and everybody else wants the U.S. to stay out. And I think that reflects an awareness that why should we care about? Ukraine and its dispute with Russia and this project of making it another NATO weapons outpost. It just doesn't make sense. And so I think by if I was a political, uh, you know, uh, betting man, I, I would bet that Biden takes a hit from this. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I looked at the same poll, I think, and it was like people said, you know, 
if the U.S. goes alone, then it's a problem. But I mean, same with Iraq. I mean, you you can say, hey, we are in an alliance with, you know, some random country, and then people are kind of. I think people would be. I don't know. I don't know how much the corporate propaganda can actually <laughs> affect people. Uh, so you know. I think, yeah, I think the U.S. is pretty alone here. It's also been clear that like. France and Germany are just not on board because this really hurts them. This makes their energy prices higher. Germany is has a lot of ties to Russia. It just doesn't make sense for them. So I I think this will be very difficult for Biden to keep this going. Right. Yeah. Well. Okay. Thanks much. We'll take one work. more caller. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Matthew, you're up. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Aaron. Um, I'm somebody who took a skeptical view of the mainstream account until today. I was uh, the mainstream kind of narrative on this. I was quite shocked by both the invasion and by the rationales used that went well beyond NATO, but explicit revanchism by Putin lamenting the Bolsheviks creating a separate Ukraine 100 years ago, and also kind of ridiculous propaganda about denazification, not just talking about there are Nazi elements, I understand some malicious, but the idea that the society is thoroughly Nazified and um, and also that there's genocide occurring. Um, so I wonder if you can engage with the rationales that were actually given rather than this NATO thing, because it wasn't, that was not the rationale given for this elevation today. There was essentially the revanchism and the, these other rationales. And, and I, I wonder if you can engage with them and also answer why you, uh, deflect to the rationale issue and not the stated rationale for this, namely what I just described. Well, I don't agree with you on what the stated rationale is. The stated rationale has for years been Russia... Okay, so Putin didn't talk about revanchism. He didn't say... No, uh, no, he did. No, 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 he he did. There was a lot of things in his speech, but I don't believe... I mean, we'll disagree on this. Russia has been demanding for a long time to take NATO membership for Ukraine off the table. And for the U.S. to stop flooding weapons into Ukraine. That's been its core demands for a long time. And so I think – and and it, it said – Putin said repeatedly that if, if – essentially if NATO – membership for Ukraine could be taken off the table, then this could be resolved. And that was ignored. And that's then what led to this invasion happening. So to say that this is about Putin's own personal beliefs about Ukraine's – uh, status in relation to Russia and Soviet history. I just don't buy that. Now, well, he said he, it. He said, well, it, so. yes, but he also talked about NATO too. Sure, that, that and, and so you're choosing. That, so you're, you're focusing on the most rational justification. I'm focusing on what was on the table in the formal documents published by Russia. I don't know if you read those, but Russia sent documents to the U.S. Mm-hmm. and to NATO, and then issued a response as well when the U.S. came back and said we're not going to take membership off the table. That was Russia's formal proposals, and you can maybe argue that had you, the U.S. accepted Russia's proposal, that Putin still would have done this. If you believe that, that's fine. I don't believe that. I think well, I'm going off what he what he said, and I don't think you're you're addressing. Okay. What he and said. I'll say one more time: I'm going off of what was formally proposed by Russia okay. in their published documents, and also what Putin said about NATO too. And yes, in his speech, and this is what nationalists often do: is they'll appeal to patriotic sentiment to try to drum up support. And I guess we'll disagree on what his motivations were. To me, his motivations were what was stated and what was formally proposed and rejected for the last eight years. Keep in mind that for the last eight years, there's been a war 
and it's Russian-speaking citizens of Ukraine who have borne the brunt of it. And this was Putin's response. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, uh, why do you think the majority of Russian people don't share? I, I personally don't even think the NATO argument is particularly compelling that Russia is about to be attacked by the West if, if Ukraine uh, were to join NATO. Why do you think most Russian citizens don't agree with Putin and aren't afraid of, of, of Ukraine attacking according to public opinion polling? Well, I haven't seen those polls. You have to send them to me. What I do know is that Putin... Well, most disagree with the war, in other words. Like, I, I, I'm inferring that they don't believe the, the security is at risk because they don't agree with the war. Okay, so if, if you're, what you're saying is true, that most Russians don't agree with the war, because probably they don't want war with their neighboring country, and uh, Russians have, have relatives and historical ties to Ukraine. So understandably, they don't want to see war there. Um, and they probably, like I do think that there were other options to deal with this mm-hmm. so just just to be clear though you don't you don't believe you surely don't believe that um the the possibility of nato membership justifies this you think it is it's it's, no. it's it, it makes it more explicable but doesn't justify which is no i understand no. that is a distinction no i'm not just no i don't think what russia right, yeah yeah, yeah okay justified. explicable versus justified is different i do understand that. yeah yeah, yeah. all right Well, I'm glad we could agree on a point of concord, Matthew. It's a good way to end the show. Thanks to everybody who called in. I'm sorry for those I didn't get to, but this was a long one, and uh, I'll be doing this again very, very soon, and I hope you'll call back and speak to me then. Stay tuned. I'll be doing this again very soon, possibly this weekend, and you can always follow me at my show, Pushback, which is at thegrayzone.com. I'm also co-hosting with Katie Halper, Useful Idiots, at substack.usefulidiots.com. And I'll be writing very soon when I get... The, uh, the time, probably this weekend, an article about just responding to the Russian attack on Ukraine. And you can find that at my substack, matte.substack.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and speaking to me. I really appreciate the opportunity to interact with everybody who follows me. It's such a, a great part of my work because otherwise, you know, I don't get to hear from people. So I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you directly. And I hope you'll come back and join me next time. Have a great rest of your day.